people go i'm listening to your episode i can hear you stifling burps and i'm like yeah <laughs> i know <laughs> very cool i'm gonna go ahead and let the sucker rip what is going on everybody this is wrong real episode 529 the podcast for hardcore cinephiles so we tackle everything from jean-luc godard to jean-luc picard and today we're tackling the world of django or not Django, depending upon which sequel or spinoff we'll rip off we're talking about. But for this Western conversation, we've got returning contributor, Western expert David Lambert, and a fresh face to the podcast, Eric Zaldivar, who uh, Bill Tech recommended years ago. I dropped the ball, let it slip through my fingers, but he's a producer. Some people might know his uh, work from the film Eurocrime, but he's here to talk about his top five favorite Django quote-unquote sequels, and the reason that needs quotes we'll get into on this episode. But fellas, welcome to Wrong Reel. Great to be back. Thanks for having me on. Well, Eric, I mean, you and I, we just started talking a, a few moments ago. I've seen some of your YouTube videos. I've seen Eurocrime, but for people out there who or I'm familiar with you, introduce yourself, tell us what you do, what you've been up to lately, all that good stuff. All right. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm basically, or, or like to consider myself, I suppose, a spaghetti Western historian, even though I've seen so many of these things now that uh, I, I never need to, need to see them ever again, and possibly not yet, not quite, I haven't gotten to the point where I can't speak about them anymore. I have to sort of uh, exercise the demons of my youth, of my misspent youth, as it were. But... Um, so you can find my stuff on YouTube at my channel, uh, where I have the series of, uh, of videos called uh, Spaghetti Western Deep Cuts, and we go into, uh, there's going to be some overlapping information, I think, in this uh, particular episode, but uh, where I talk about the lesser known titles of the genre and uh, go into detail about that, and at times I'm able to interview uh, people that were involved in them. Uh, a lot of the times I just get uh my information from sort of rare self-published books <laughs> on the matters uh like uh, there's this actor called thomas hunter and he starred in two spaghetti westerns didn't have that much of a career uh in general but he decided to write a memoir that heavily talked about those times and that was kind of an interesting read so that all gets filtered into my my, my uh, videos but in terms of uh more ambitious endeavors 
yes, uh, helped produce uh, Eurocrime, the cop and gangster films that ruled the 70s. Uh, is it, uh, you, I believe you could watch it on Amazon Prime, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I don't know, David, do you want to talk about our little collaboration 10 years ago? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Well, the way we met is uh, I had uh, written a, a script for a friend um, who sort of, uh, you know, he he's very, very prolific. And at that time, he was, I mean, he still is, you know, pumping out probably two feature length films, very low budget films a year. And he said, I want you to write me a Western. So I wrote it. And then the script started getting more attention. And one of the people uh, who uh, kind of latched onto it was Eric. And he was able to get us, you know, um, uh, financing and able to get us some old Spaghetti Western stars like Dan Van Heusen, rest in peace, uh, Brett Halsey. Um, and so it just, you know, it kind of it's kind of snowballed into something bigger. Um, but I don't ever, I don't ever give the name. I always, you know, if people are that interested, they can search it out. It has, it is on Amazon prime, uh, an edited version under a different title. So <laughs> if, yeah, if any detectives want to, want to kind of, uh, put my name and his name together and try to find out what movie it is, um, you know, they can, they can do that, but, uh, I don't, uh, I don't promote it a whole lot. It's, you know, it's so long ago. So, so long ago, so cheap. So that's yeah, yeah, yeah it's very cheap. Uh, that could be but, the uh, uh, the the subtitle for this entire episode. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, so long, so, long, so long, so cheap. Um, but uh, you know, it's not a movie that I'm not that I'm not necessarily like you know uh, trying to disavow. It's just you know, um, uh, it's it's sort of a, a fun thing that was exciting uh, to do at the time and. And all that, but uh, you know, if people want to put the work in, they can find it. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I, I'm, you know, vaguely proud of it uh, for what it is. I won't mention the name either, um, just because it's uh, at the time, especially, it was. It seemed like every time I walked into Walmart, there was all these westerns that were made for you know hardly any money, um, maybe about a hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars. We had considerably less than that. Um, and all those movies are nothing more than just shoot 'em ups and there was no thought process and it seems like it was a script written over a weekend. But David wrote, uh, I think, a fine script and, and um, I think we're certainly a lot better than any of those movies I just mentioned. Um, but yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we, it's, it's, it's a bunch of guys got together and tried to make something you know, yes. that was worth it, I think. And that's what's <laughs> kind of commendable about it. I hear you. Well, uh, if y'all ever get the itch to head out into the desert again with a bunch of cowboy hats, let me know. I, I occasionally dabble in the world of uh, producing live-action and/or animated movies, so you never know. I might, depending upon what mood you might find me in, I might be like, "Fuck yeah, let's do this!" So. <laughs> yeah. Well, David's got some wonderful uh, short stories that could be made into, I think, fine shorts, uh, um, so long as there's a you know proper budget for it. Uh, and in terms of today, uh, I, you know, we'll get into it later about Django Lives, if any of your viewers even heard about that. It's going back a few years as well. Uh, nowadays, I'm just, I'm still writing, uh, writing scripts. A lot of them are Westerns. I have one that, uh, that is of uh, being uh, considered by uh, an indie director of some notoriety. Uh, but, uh, you know, COVID kind of put a monkey wrench into a lot of my plans uh, this year society at large yeah 
Yes. Well, one thing COVID did not put a monkey wrench into is our ability to hop on Skype and shoot the shit about spaghetti westerns, and which is a subject that has been woefully neglected on this podcast. Uh, Lambert and I have done a ton of episodes about westerns, but David, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if we've, if we've ever discussed any spaghetti westerns unless it's like in reference to something else. It's like the topic at hand. But I think there's people out there who enjoy westerns. There are people out there who love westerns. I think there are people out there who love spaghetti westerns, by which they mean films by Sergio Leone. And then you've got some people who have dabbled in the world of Sergio Corbucci, which is the kind of the category I would place myself in. And then you've got people like Eric Zaldivar, who've actually seen all 85 movies that kind of sort of make a reference to and or exploit or use the name of Django. So before we dive into just the first film at hand, Django, 1966, from director Sergio Corbucci. Maybe give like the introductory guide to the uninitiated as to just how strange and bizarre and popular this name and kind of loose, I'm using the word loosely, franchise became from the late 60s through the mid-70s. Yes, um, it's, it's a simple story. Uh, 1966, we're already deep into the Italian Western boom. Uh, this is the year of the good, the bad, and the ugly. A much more cheap film came out that year. Uh, I believe it was made for just, I think it was even under the amount that A Fistful of Dollars was made, which uh, reportedly that was $200,000 uh, by a, uh, a director named Sergio Corbucci. And he got a, uh, a blue-eyed Italian uh, man who had been kicking around the Italian film industry for a little while at that point uh, called Franco Nero. And uh, they made a film that is a kind of this down-and-dirty very quick 90-minute shoot-em-up uh, with a guy who carries around or drags around a coffin, and inside the coffin is a machine gun, and he goes up against these uh, Klansmen-type characters, all in red hoods. And, I mean, that's all you can really say about the plot. Uh, there, It is a little bit of a fistful of dollars influence. There's two gangs. There's the Mexican gang who are evil. There's the Klan members who are evil, and Django's kind of pitted right in the middle. You don't get a good sense of what he's uh, about, Uh one moment he's for revenge, the next moment he's for uh, making uh, a quick buck. So, uh, but what you're there for is basically the style of the film. It's uh, it's 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 just covered in mud. Uh, not as much as uh, as perhaps a Dirty Little Billy a few years later. But, <laughs> That's definitely but, the muddiest uh, film that we've talked about on this podcast. Yeah, but certainly uh, uh, Franco. I'm sorry, uh, Django was a, a a precursor to those types of that that sort of western. Uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller would also be one that uh, is pretty muddy. Um, and well, let's uh, get Shane. That's right. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Shane, of course, Shane is very muddy. Yeah. Yeah. Shane yeah. and and uh, Canyon Passage. Those are the two old older westerns that I can think of that have a uh, real uh, real muddy uh, thing. And I and I and I believe that Corbucci. Originally wanted it to be snowy, like he later did in uh, The Specialist and um, uh, obviously The Great Silence. Um, and he was somewhat disappointed by the muddiness of it, but then he kind of learned to to go with it. And that aesthetically is one of the strongest parts of the film, I think. Yeah, he embraced it. Uh, the film, it, anyways, it was a huge hit, huge international hit. Uh, so much so, and we'll get into this in a little while, but so much so that uh, it spawned 50-plus fake sequels. And I say fake because they had nothing to really do with the original, uh, minus one, or minus one and a half, I should say, and we'll talk about that. Uh, that's on our list. Uh, the others were just uh, cash grabs. Uh, they took the Django name, and they slapped it on these other films that were called originally something else. 
And uh, the biggest offenders of, of this sort of marketing scheme were the Germans. <laughs> Not sure why, but but uh, it just it resonated with them. Uh, I, I, obviously, Django was a huge, huge hit, no bigger anywhere else than, than it was in Germany. But uh, yeah, the film was just uh, just gangbusters, except for in the United States. It didn't. It didn't really play in the United States until 1972. It was released in a few drive-ins. Uh, this was an actual theatrical release where they removed the D from the name, and it was just Django, J-A-N-G-O. Um, but before that, the film had played in America a few times in uh, when it was fairly new, I believe in 1967, when Franco, who became a huge international star after the, the, the film was released, he came to Hollywood to shoot Camelot, and he showed the film privately at the Playboy Mansion, as well as other places. Uh, and uh, people in attendance, like Jack Nicholson, were trying to. You can unfortunately see all this on Wikipedia now. Uh, this is this is all <laughs> this is all information that you know uh, Franco told me years and years ago. But now somehow somebody got a hold of it. Uh, Jack Nicholson wanted to have it for a Roger Corman remake. Uh, this is around the time Monty Hellman probably was going to direct, more than likely. That never came to fruition, obviously. Um, but uh, And that's basically the story of Django. You want my review of the movie? Uh, I saw it in, I remember exactly when, September 21st, 2004. I had bought the Blue Underground DVD of it, and I was floored. It wasn't the first Spaghetti Western that I saw uh, the first non-Leone Spaghetti Western that I saw, I think I had seen Death Rides a Horse and, you know, that terrible pan and scan that everybody had seen back then uh, and maybe a few other films. But Django was the one that definitely left a huge – it was the first one that made a big impression where I was just like, okay, I want to I dedicate I don't know how many years to watching as many of these as possible and just just doing all I can for the genre, you know. And it led to a lot of good friendships, uh, David, but also a lot of – uh, friendships with uh, people that worked on him, like I'm obviously very good friends with Franco. I uh, until Tomas Leon passed, uh, uh, I was a good friend of his the last five years of his life, and uh, uh, people like uh, Tony Anthony and uh, you know they, these these people I've I've worked with over the years, over the course of what 15 years now. But uh, my review for the film: uh, great opening, 30 minutes. You know everything leading up to what's inside the coffin is great. And then a saggy middle, and then a great ending. That's that's the film. I think that's, I think that's fair, but it's. I mean, I've, I've only seen Django a couple times, but goddamn, it's uh, it's special. And prior to the Wild Bunch, you could. I mean, if you just want blood and guts, this was the most violent western ever made. But I think there's more to it. I mean, I, I love the music. I love Frank Nero's performance. I love the aesthetic of all the mud. I love just how fucking evil it is. I mean, you've got. The major, quite literally, you know, letting people like run around like quail, and while uh, while 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 shooting them, and then you've got people getting their ears hacked off. So yeah, if you just want a good old-fashioned, depraved, nihilistic western with a little Italian swagger, I think Django holds up insanely well. But Mr. Lambert, I'm curious to hear what you think of Django because you pitch a lot of topics, and there are a lot of them lean more toward being really grounded and some really cool historical accuracy but obviously with Italian spaghetti westerns you know gritty authenticity is not necessarily what they're what they're known for or what they're even going for so where, where do you stand when it comes to uh the second most famous Sergio uh, to come out of Italy uh well my story with Django is, is pretty similar to to Eric's uh, after after seeing the, the Leone films um I think the first spaghetti non Leone spaghetti western I saw was uh, Day of Anger 
which I remember, you know, thinking was pretty okay at the time. I think I like it more now. And then I, uh, yeah, and then I got a VHS copy of uh, Django. It hadn't been released on DVD yet, um, just because this was a while ago. And uh, and kind of like Eric, I was blown away. At that time, I was really more of a guy who was into, you know, action scenes and massacres and slaughter. And uh, Django was like, you know, the ultimate, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, just kill them all spaghetti western. The atmosphere of it's great. The mud's great. The overcast skies. That's the you know the filthy town. Everything's filthy. Uh, the production designed by Carlos Simi, who who had done the Leone films and uh, and all that. So so yeah, I've uh, I, you know I fell in love with Django immediately. And you know as I watched more more westerns, you start to yeah like Eric said, kind of go like. Well, uh, who is this character? <laughs> you know, <laughs> is, is he for revenge? Is he for the gold? Uh, is he in love with this lady, this whore that he meets? And you're just kind of like, you know, and and then finding out that the movie kind of had just sort of like a rough blueprint as opposed to um, any kind of like finished polished script. You're like, oh, that makes sense. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, uh, yeah, is he Colonel Mortimer or is he the man with no name? Which one? What What is he going after here? Uh, and then it's also just kind of typifies, um, you know, uh, the kind of the whole spaghetti Western aesthetic. Uh, like, you know, Leone would try to, to a certain extent, put his movies um, in a specific period so that, um, you know, uh, when you watch A Fistful of Dollars, even though he's just kind of throwing it, throwing it together, you can kind of get an idea of it being late 1800s. Uh, maybe oh, yeah, I mean, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You've got legit civil war battles. I mean, the blue versus the gray yeah. is a huge part of it. Yeah, exactly. And so, and then when you watch like four feet dollars more, it's clearly like 1880s. And then when you watch uh, good, the bad, and the ugly, obviously it's the civil war. And even though certain things are wrong, you get a feel that he's trying to figure out the time and place. Django, as I've always said, and like most spaghetti westerns, it's just sort of in a western. It's in a west world. So you have it's in the, the, <laughs> this guy, the movie world of Westerns. Yeah. So you've got this guy who's like dressed in like Civil War garb and uh, and uh, they're talking about how the war is over and he's going up against these Confederates in red. There actually were post-war uh, Confederates who wore red. They were called the red shirts. I do not think that Sergio Corbucci knew that. I think that's coincidence. <laughs> but they were actually like a Ku Klux Klan kind of organization um, that, you know, uh, would wear their red clothing and all that. Uh, but then you have like references to uh, the revolution, like I think the Mexican Revolution. They're wearing 1913 era uh, General Huerta cocky uniforms and so, and so you're like wait is this right after the civil war is this right up to the mexican revolution it doesn't matter it's just it's just a fucking west world basically yeah it's an exercise in pure style like for me the scenes where the music just swells
Mi sono annoiato, pensaci tu, Ringo. Vai! I think this has got some of the best music of any of the uh, spaghetti westerns, and obviously, like like a ten minute chunk of it was basically lifted entirely by Tarantino many decades later for Django Unchained for the the whipping scene where um, Jimmy Fox gets revenge. But you hear it twice in the original Django, and it's just awe inspiring, operatic, just pure style, and I think it's a ton of fun. Yeah, definitely, and 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 his machine gun is just so is. It's just so wild. It looks a lot, way, real similar to the one they use in uh, Fistful of Dollars. Or the one they uh, use in Predator. I mean, it's like old painless. It's, it's incredible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, what is this gun? It looks like has the body of a of a like a Maxim belt fed machine gun, even though the the bullets aren't actually moving. And then you have this barrel, which is like a Militruse or uh, you know, um, old uh, like French, not even machine gun barrel. But it's like just this weird prop, and uh, and so yeah, it's it's uh, you know it's it's uh, it's just it's a comic book movie. So uh, um, I, I always find it enjoyable. Uh, I would prefer if it had maybe a clear a narrative line as to you know what Django is actually trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think so. comic book is a great way to describe it because there's certain action scenes like when Django blows away people in all directions. The first time we really see him going up against the men of the major and he shoots the gun out of the major's hand, but he basically shoots like left, right, forward, backwards, over his shoulder. And it's we're getting into the world of something more resembling like uh, you know the primary colored pa- panels of like Marvel Comics, which I love because I'm a comic book fanatic. But I, what I love about all these movies, good, bad, in between – Django ripoff, official sequel, whatever. I love how pretty much any trope that was established by Yojimbo is all fair game. I mean, as Eric pointed out, rival factions in a small town, or being tortured and beaten at the two-thirds mark, or have, like laying waste an entire army at the end, or like three-way showdowns, or deals with coffee makers. It's like there's so many tropes that were established by that first film, which obviously then got employed by Fistful of Dollars, and you just see those tropes again and again and again. And uh, I guess part of the fun is seeing like what are the variations on these tropes. And so all these movies for me that you've, that Eric picked for us today were brand new to me. So I had an, I mean, apart from Django, so I had an absolute blast checking out uh, all these, but Eric, I'll smack the ball back to your side of the court. Do you have a particular Django knockoff sequel, et cetera, that you would like to start with to kind of open the door to this conversation? Sure. Let's start with the film of Franco's that came out immediately after this within a few months. Let's start with Massacre Time. You left to find Apollo Gold. A thousand miles you rode alone. All alone, along the alleyway. With a lady anywhere. You'll come back home someday. You'll come back home someday. And fill your eyes with burning sand Bitter 
Fulci. I'm not sure. I've, uh, oh, yes. The German title is Django the Runner. And also, wasn't it called like The Brute and the Beast in some territories? Yes. The AIP version, when it came to America, it was redubbed and it was called The Brute and the Beast in America. Uh, originally titled Tiempo de Massacro, uh, I think. Um, uh, that's uh, Massacre Time. And um, as I said, Germany, Django the Runner. It's a Lucho Fulci movie when he was making westerns. Uh, people don't realize, a lot of fans of Fulci don't realize that he was making all sorts of genres, not just horror. Oh, yeah, sword and sandal movies and all kinds of things. But yeah, yeah I saw, oh, shit, what's his later Western? Not Day of the Apocalypse. What was it? Over Saddle? Oh. Four Horsemen yeah. of the Apocalypse. Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. That's the only one I'd seen. I wasn't even aware of this. I guess the earliest movie by him I'd seen. Well, that's Four of the Apocalypse. You were right the first time. Yeah. Oh, then... no, yeah. Yeah, and so the, I guess the earliest film of him I had seen prior to this were some of his kind of kinky sexual dramas from the late sixties. I mean, so this is the farthest back with Lucio Fulci I've gone, but it was I was great. I'm, I'm always trying to shine a light on corners of his career that I've not been exposed to yet. This might very well be the furthest I've gone too. I think he did a few comedies before this. Um, you can look that up, but yeah, this was his first uh, out of five westerns. If you want to count, he did two White Fang films in the seventies. There was a uh, a Charlton Heston movie that came out, uh, I believe it was an American film. I'm not entirely certain, but it was a hit in Italy. And if something was a hit in Italy, as you know, there's just going to be a bunch of Italian copycats. So, <laughs> Which you articulate really well in your Eurocrime doc about if there's a hit, there's an Italian remake. And if that's a hit, then it's going to spawn possibly dozens of unofficial ripoffs. Exactly. So this uh, Charlton Heston, Call of the Wild, I believe it was, um, uh, hit in Italy. I don't think it was uh, did much here, but uh, so that started an entire subgenre of the western. So you had a bunch of uh, leading men like Franco, particularly, uh, and uh, Maurizio Merli and all these guys. They were doing White Fang movies. They were doing films in the wilderness, uh, usually with a, a wolf dog uh, in the snow. And um, Fulci did two of them with Franco. Uh, he and Franco actually did not get along very well. Lucio hated, I mean, Lucio was a pretty contentious guy from what I understand, but Lucio hated Franco. He, he thought he was dumb. Um, I mean, that's about all really the story goes, but they worked together three times and two of them was, two times was in White Fang, White Fang uh, and The Challenge of White Fang, all from the 70s. But their first collaboration was Massacre Time and their best collaboration, and it's also Lucio Fulci's best Western. So he has five, Massacre Time, uh, the White Fang, Challenge of White Fang, For the Apocalypse, and then Silver Saddle with Giuliano Gemma. Well, we'll get into that in a second. But uh, Massacre Time is his first and best Western, in my opinion. I think it complements his pacing. I think it complements uh, Lucio Fulci's pacing. Fulci, kind of like, you go back and you watch Zombie, you go back and you watch uh, Gates of Hell or something, a lot of that stuff is really dull. It's like moves like molasses. Oh, and yeah. Well, it has these like crazy sequences that are unforgettable, and then there's like 20 minutes of stuff that would makes you want to rip your eyes out, and it's like yeah. people remember those like glory sequences and they forget the rest. Yeah, definitely. I think The Beyond is probably his best film. I think it works. That pacing works well in that movie for some reason or other. I saw it recently, so I can actually attest to that. But Massacre Time, being a western, and in turn being an, an Italian western, I think the sort of glacial um, pacing kind of works in its favor uh so you have a film where 
not much really happens. They set it up and then there's a lot of investigating, you know, what went wrong. And because uh, the story is this uh, panhandler comes back to the town that his family, he was apparently very rich. Uh, his family was uh, had control of the town and then now it had been taken over by somebody else. He comes back and everything, all of his old, uh, his parents' old businesses are, have been renamed. And uh, he goes back to his ranch. That's been deserted. Uh, it's almost like, I be- sort of like the, the, the Odyssey, I think a little bit, obviously. But um, so he has to take on the, uh, the land grabbers. So a lot doesn't happen for the first hour. And then there's this great whipping sequence. Oh, fuck yeah. Dueling whips. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> Dueling whips, almost like a Lash LaRue type scenario where Lash LaRue had a few dueling whips in, in, in his uh, B-Westerns that are very enjoyable. And then uh, he has to, that's sort of the torture sequence. That's the beating up sequence for the hero. Uh, and then he has to go lick his wounds. And then he comes back. And then the climax is this almost John Woo-esque uh, shoot him up. Uh, where, you know, he's flipping in the air and he's somersaulting and he's firing with, with uh, you know, through the air and things like that. A lot, obviously a huge influence on Hong Kong action films. Uh, it's, it's You're not going to get the exact thing. You're going to get a very rudimentary, arcane version of it, but it's 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 there. The scenes yeah, but are that there. That backflip was special. I mean, he I guess he hops in a wagon and the wagon is, he's riding a carriage and when the carriage hits this wall, then he does the giant backflip, lands behind him, it's like boom, 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 shoots like four or five guys. And yeah, yeah. It's, if you like, if you like uh, hardball, yeah, hardball, the uh, John Woo film, because I, I like, I always like seeing sequences where you have two guys working together, especially like handing each other guns or finishing off each other's shots or taking turns shooting one guy as he spins in agony. And so all that stuff I get off on. But uh, the only thing I would uh, part ways with you on when you said the first hour is kind of uneventful, it is, but the very first scene is so goddamn good where you have a guy released from a wooden box and being hunted like he's a fox with men on horses and whips and a pack of big scary dogs. And it lets you know, all right, we're in depraved, dark, violent, dangerous territory. So I really loved the opening hunt sequence that kind of gets the movie up and running. Yeah, that is a good sequence. I like the movie. I like. I, I don't mind the first hour. Uh, in fact, I think they threw in a fisty cuffs in a saloon in order to sort of wake the audience up. But I don't mind any of that stuff. I, um, I think it complements the movie just fine. It's very... Once upon a time in the West, opening, you know, it's just like it's going to take its time to get where it, to where it's going. And it's got weird stuff like the villain who's got daddy issues and like playing the organ and all all that stuff. I thought was hysterical. But Mr. Lambert, what are your thoughts on Massacre Time? Oh well, just getting back to that uh, opening sequence, uh, you know, I I, I I I'd seen this years ago. I think this is one of the first like post Django purchases. And uh, yeah, rewatching it, that opening sequence of the dogs. Uh, reminded me of the scene in uh, in uh, Django Unchained when the uh, when the uh, escaped slave is uh, ripped apart by dogs. So I'm sure that was probably uh, on Tarantino's mind when he when he did that scene. And uh, getting back to the John Woo stuff, also you guys forgot to mention that when the villain dies, a bunch of doves fly up into the air. So <laughs> also, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I will say also the 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 weird sort of psychosexual relationship between the crazy son and the father. It, it It's almost like it's funny that this was an AIP pickup for distribution in America because a lot of that stuff, all the piano organ um, playing and all that, a lot of that stuff reminds me of the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this one, uh, I enjoy it. It's, it, it's not my favorite. Um, 
uh, like you said, the you know it's yeah uh, it's uh, it was uh, written by uh, what Fernando uh, what Delio Delio De yeah. or I, yeah. I don't I'm, I'm gonna butcher butcher all the Italian names but uh, and he was the the co-writer of Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More right Yes Yeah Yeah So um, it it has it has interesting stuff but it's I don't know I, I think a lot of it at least in terms of plot. Um, I, I don't, I don't think that Fulci is doing a lot with it, you know, like, um, outside of the action scenes and even some of the action scenes, I kind of go, uh, you know, the, when, uh, the, the whip fight is cool, but then there's like this, just this prolonged like scene of like Franco Nero being whipped over and over and over and over. And you're like, okay, we could probably trim some of this. <laughs> I would have liked so. to have seen, because the climax is him and the villain are on top of this sort of building and the villain falls and that's when the white doves come out. But like, there's a scene just before, or, or a shot just before that where the whip is hanging on the wall. I kind of wanted a redo of the whip scene, of the whip duel, so that they can, this time Franco would win, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I could definitely see that. Um, but yeah, some of it's just played kind of odd, you know, like, the, the the family is getting pushed off the property and and uh, you know they're going basically without a fight and then they get then, shot for trying to leave. It's like, yeah. well, make up your mind. Like, you want us to go or you want us to stay? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And then just the family's reaction is just sort of like, oh, you know, like <laughs> like uh, uh, you know, like they they like lost a dog or something. Like, there's no <laughs> there's like no actual horror that they're their family member has just been shot in cold blood it's you know barely any reaction but uh but uh but it but it's still entertaining the action scenes are entertaining the the uh the stereotypical chinaman who quoting confucius, confucius just, just that that'll <laughs> for modern viewers that's gonna, that's gonna maybe play odd uh he's kind of like an extension of the of the uh, the Chinese guy and four fuelers more who keeps getting <laughs> who keeps getting pulled between uh, Colonel Mortimer and the man with no name. Um, I saw but, him more as like the uh, the coffin maker in a fistful. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I just mean that is I his occupation. It it seems like uh, uh, Fernando De Leo is just sort of. Uh, I think he just enjoyed uh, you know his uh, stereotypical uh, you know. Uh, Asian, Asian, Asian boys, yeah. Asian characters, not boys. Um, but uh, yeah, he's anything yeah, but a boy. So, he's like he's at death's door with yeah. a gnarly set of teeth. And he's a yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, and and then uh, I've also read that the original title was "The Cult Sang Death." Dot dot dot. And it was massacre time. Is that not true? Uh, I guess so. I, I saw I, I, the cult sang the cult sang death, and it was dot dot dot. Massacre time is, the, is yeah. where where I found it. La cult conterono la morte e fu dot dot tempo di massacro. I don't speak Italian. You're not wrong. Yeah. Um. Let me see what else. I got some trivia. Got oh, some laying on it. So I guess. Well, quick quick question for you though. Nero is wearing something resembling the Django classic Django outfit, but he's not Django. So was that outfit chosen because of the success of Django? Were they shot at roughly the same time, or how much overlap is there since they're both sixty six? They shot Django. They began shooting the, the beginning of Django. He's just uh, dragging. It's basically test footage. They were dragging. It's the credit sequence. They're dragging the mud, the coffin through the mud. It's vaguely raining, and um, that was shot just before Christmas, 1965. Then they didn't have a script, as Lambert pointed out, 
and they had to come back. They wrote over the Christmas holiday, you know, some semblance of, you know, it's probably a pamphlet-like sort of document. <laughs> and uh, in January, they shot the rest of it. Massacre Time was released, if I'm not mistaken, uh, somewhere in the middle of the year, I think in the second quarter in May. Uh, so it's it's part of three films that Franco would star in that year, which is his most prolific year in the genre. Uh, he The next one would be Texas Adios, which also, incidentally, is a Django movie in Germany. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure of the timeline. That's something that I should maybe ask Franco about. Like, hey, so did you get the Massacre Time gig because of Django, or did you already have it going? I want to say things moved quickly back then. And I want to say that, because uh, I can't imagine Django was shot in January and then released before Massacre Time, but it's entirely possible that it was. I mean, it was it was a, a cheap, you know, film that, you know, they could just edit together in, in, under a fortnight, more than likely. I, I heard, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was referencing to this movie, but I, I heard that they had seen uh, production stuff Dills or dailies or that something would make more like sense. that. Yeah, that would make of, more sense of, to me. Of Franco Nero, and so that might be why they sort of like gave him a same kind of hat and stuff. And yeah, and that would very- make more sense to me. But also, I'm glad you mentioned the wardrobe because yeah, it's sort of only vaguely Django. It's more like a cloak type of thing. He does look like a that sort of moody, dark character. But when he takes it off, what's he wearing? He's wearing that uh, the sheepskin. Sheepskin uh, that Clint Eastwood's wearing in Fistful of Dollars. Well, lay some, lay, lay some trivia on us. What, 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 what are the, the juicy nuggets before we move on? I only have one behind-the-scenes sort of deal. What's his face from uh, Umbrellas of... Uh, oh, Umbrellas of Sherberg, yeah. the uh, Jacques Demi Thank film? you, yes. So. Yeah, Nino Castanovo is, is the leading man in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he played the, the perverted son in, in Massacre Time. But anyways, so uh, Nino Castanovo plays the perverted uh, son who has an affinity for whipping Franco in the face multiple times over and over and over and over and over and over again. That scene was shot the first day. (laughs) (laughs) And the first day of shooting that scene was shot. And back then, you know, the Italians are very haphazard in their movie making. Um, I think things like this still happen to this day, but not 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 nearly as much. But um, so they they would the, you know depended the producer an overzealous producer was promising all sorts of people, all sorts of things that he probably shouldn't have been promising, and Nino Castanovo's role was offered to Klaus Kinski, mm. and which makes sense. I think that would have been a pretty good role for him. Uh, and so Klaus, not getting the memo, probably there was no memo, there was no nothing, don't show up, you didn't get the role, he <laughs> showed up on the first day. Nice. They should have fucking put him in there anyway. Yeah. He, he walks in on, on set, and they're, they're in the middle of the whipping scene. He shows up, and he's, he's just like, what the fuck? What's going on here? You know, I'm supposed to be playing this role. And they're like, oh, no, I'm sorry, we're going with Nino. And, and he had like a, a famous diva, or divo, I guess, uh, Kinski tantrum. And, that doesn't uh, sound like and, him. Yeah, and he he overturned a few tables and then walked off. <laughs> I uh, I mean, so they got a, they got a, a smart producer much- would have just filmed the temper tantrum and then written it into the script somehow. Yeah, yeah, they should have just rolled camera on that one. But uh, who knows? They might have had limited. Or maybe stuff. he wasn't in the proper wardrobe. So. Uh, yeah, maybe not. He might have shown up in his. I don't know if he was super rich Kinski at that point, but he. I mean, that guy 
that guy was just showing up in almost anything for as little amount of time as possible for the most money as possible. He was just showing up in like, you know, 13 films a year. And he was just, uh, he was just throwing money around like nobody's business. He had a Rolls Royce and all that. At one point, him and Richard Harrison were in a contest of who could have the nicest car uh, mm -hmm. in any given month. Now, what a time to be alive. Uh, those guys, yeah. most of those guys were all paid under the table cash. So, yeah, and I was listening to one of your videos on YouTube, and I thought it was fascinating about how the actors, obviously, they're in the volume business, and the reason so many of them are dubbed by other actors is that they wouldn't get paid for the dubbing days, so they would just say, fuck it, I'd rather keep working, so they make a lot of movies, and then you have a bunch of kind of, you know, Joe Schmoe's coming in and dubbing these people, but that was a, a big eye-opener, because so rarely do you see someone like Terrence Hill or whomever being dubbed by, by, by themselves. Yeah, I mean, Franco wasn't dubbed in his first three films, which is a detriment to Django. Uh, he's actually dubbed by uh, Fred Ward. Um, he just sounds drastically different. He's very young. Did I get that? Did I get that? Again, edit. Did I get that right? Let me see. Yeah, Fred Ward. That's exactly what I'm thinking of. Thank you. Uh, you know, this, but it was, it would be on his fourth Western. No, wait, no, I'm, that's in, yes, yes, correct. It would be on his fourth Western where Franco would be like, no, 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 okay, I'm going to, I'm going to play these like, foreign guys and i'll just dub myself because he did it for it's true you weren't getting paid it wasn't part of the contract to get paid for the dubbing you only did it if you actually cared about a your performance and cared about your fans i'm not making any you know dispersions against richard harrison richard's a very nice guy but but yeah he was a guy who was just like all about the money and he was just making he was just cranking them out he didn't have time to to dub his own voice it would take weeks to do that and in that time, he would make another movie and make another, you know, $200,000 or whatever it is that they were paying him at the time. Yeah. So, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Everyone should uh, should watch the the Italian um, version of Django because the the American dub is just I mean, I usually prefer just watching them American in American dubs just because it's the American West and all that. And it's dubbed even if it is in Italian. So it doesn't you know, it doesn't really matter. But uh, yeah, his voice in Django uh, in the American version is is so bad. <laughs> so but oftentimes these I mean, Django is readily available and there's nice Blu-rays and that sort of thing. Most of these movies it's hard to find any version, much less the correct version, or whatever the correct version might be, depending upon which territory you're in. So as we get into these other movies, sometimes it's hard to know where to start, where to find them, what's the best version. And I mean, obviously, any information you have for folks on what your preferred versions are, by all means. But it was one of the things where when I was trying to prep for this, I was like, if I can just find any version, period, then that's better than uh, nothing. So it was, some of these uh, copies were not ideal that I uh, got exposed to. Yeah, yeah. When I, uh, you know, when I first started getting into westerns, and it was really more through spaghetti westerns, um, I would always try to find like the, you know, this was in the days of VHS. Uh, I would always go to the video store, try to find the westerns with these shittiest looking box covers because I was like, oh, this is definitely a spaghetti western that has been repackaged by some crappy <laughs> distribution company. Uh, so I experienced a lot of these movies just in the worst possible ways cut down and all that but it was always it was always interesting to try to explore uh you know before uh before the days of uh, the internet made made a lot of them more readily available had a you know when i was a young man late teens early 20s if i was living in this time i mean just the availability of spaghetti westerns on amazon prime and and even a bunch of free ones on youtube i, I you know i would have 
you know, I probably would, <laughs> I probably would have, would never leave my room. Um, yeah, the 21st but, century has uh, been very kind to Italian genre filmmakers. I feel like from the 50s through probably the early 80s, you've got this genuine golden age of horror and westerns and thrillers and cop movies and there's just this ocean like legitimate bottomless ocean of content out there but i don't know if a lot of these filmmakers like umberto lenzi or lucio fulci or whomever would have become i guess cult heroes for so so many for i guess yet another generation if not for how technology has at least simplified the hunt to a degree yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a detriment uh, in, in a lot of ways, not to this show, because obviously you guys were able to see a lot of these movies on YouTube, but the abundance of Italian Westerns or hard to find films on YouTube is just not going to create a generation of people who are interested in these films. It's not going to create a historianship of any kind, because at least with me or David, we watched these things and they were still difficult to get. I think we had it a lot easier than, than, than the generations prior who, you know, had to spend $90 for a VHS of kid vengeance, which, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> you, you don't yeah. want to be doing that, but, but we had it a lot easier. We got it through trades and stuff, but these things were still difficult to come by. And, um, now there's no mystery anymore. There's no sense of uncovering something. It's just like, Oh, okay. Uh, the, the third day the crow arrived is, is on YouTube. You know, yeah, oh. yeah. You're yeah. talking about a phenomenon I've discussed before, where in the '90s, when I was getting really into Orson Welles, a lot of his movies were hard to find, or if you found them, they weren't necessarily the best versions. Like something like Chimes of Midnight was notoriously difficult to see in a pristine format for many, many decades. And part of the joy and part of the sense of ownership over a filmmaker when you're getting into movie history is all the effort that it took to hunt down the movies. And when that becomes disposable, does that? making people feel a little more detached or blasé about the filmography on the whole. And I guess that remains to be seen. I'll have to talk to somebody who's half my age, who's come of age during the age of abundance. But I, yeah, in the 90s, a large part of my obsession with Orson Welles was like this sense of victory when I would finally find a version that was good-looking, proper cut, or as close as you were going to get. So yeah, I totally understand what you mean. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I remember... The days of buying like VHS bootlegs of like Japanese laser discs or something of paying a bunch of money for like a Django kill because everyone was like, that is amazing. And then being an action guy, you know, watching it and being like, what the fuck is this shit? <laughs> Which I've grown to enjoy it more. But Django kill was was one that I was like, oh, I spent so much money for just the shittiest <laughs> <laughs> not what I wanted out of a spaghetti Buyer's West. remorse. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. The deep, dark secret is that that movie's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. People swear by it. I, I like the surrealistic aspects of it, but yeah, that's one yeah, that people it's weird, really it's love, really swear when by. When it's weird, it's fun, but otherwise, it's like it's, it's, it's over long, it's, first of all. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's one. It's another molasses-paced one. Uh, before we stop talking about Massacre Time, I wanted to ask Eric, um, and maybe I'm misremembering, but... Uh, I I, I kind of the the villain um, I thought was later echoed somewhat in the the villain in um, uh, the Grand Duel the white suit and sort of the weird uh, his weird sort of uh, acting and and all that I wanted to get your thoughts on that I haven't seen uh, Grant the Grand Duel in twenty years but uh, they they kind of uh, kind that kind of clicked for me when I was uh, rewatching this one yeah the Fay and or psychosexual villain crops up wearing white particularly uh, crops up a few times in Italian westerns that seems to be it's not like a staple by any means but it's there's a few dozen films that uh, that have is characters this, like is that is this the the first uh, example you can think of yeah i would say so uh, if there's something earlier then i'm just 
uh, I'd be remiss. But um, I mean, I, I think also later on in the program, we're going to talk about another one that's also also wears white. Um, uh, and it's vaguely, I don't know if fey is the, is the word, but psychosexual, certainly. myself another drink excellent yeah any and all drugs and alcohol are not only uh acceptable but encouraged while recording an episode of wrong real i am a teetotaler so oh interesting then how are you and david friends (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i mean teetotaler uh asterisk asterisk at the you know occasionally maybe if i'm in the mood once a year at the most Interesting, yeah. I drink hard probably once a month. I'll drink maybe socially like once a week. So I just I love like a little one one or two hit weed buzz in the in the evening. Yeah, we, weed's never been my thing. Yeah, I either I either feel too. Uh, I either my my brain starts racing, which I don't like, or my brain just completely slows down, which I also <laughs> which I also don't like. But you know stuff like acid mushrooms. Um, other things. Uh, well, we'll are, have to do a microdosing episode where we talk about like some psychedelic hippie westerns, and we'll microdose and get go go to uh, to strange forbidden places. But uh, Mr. Lambert, now that you're properly lubed up, why don't you introduce the uh, the next flick on our list? God forgives, I don't from 1967. Oh boy, oh man, I got to introduce it. <laughs> Unless you wish to defer to Eric, but I was going to I was going to give you a chance to open up the door of the. I think this is the first official collaboration between Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill, correct? Yeah. I, okay. For the sake of the, the podcast, we can move on. I was just going to mention very quickly something about Massacre Time as well. Oh, by all means. Oh, yeah. uh, also, one thing we should probably mention is um, Franco's performance in Massacre Time is not like the most exciting thing in the world. Thankfully, we have uh, his sidekick buddy George Hilton. Uh, who makes it a little bit more bearable, I think, uh, in terms of entertainment. He's he, This was a, whereas Django was a star-making role for Franco, Massacre Time was a star-making role for George Hilton. Well, is he the guy who does that thing where he says, whiskey's no good for me, and then chucks a bottle like 100 feet into the air behind him and shoots That's it without looking? 
Yeah, and says, hey, gentlemen, or something, and he starts shooting people up. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a great bit, without a doubt. Yeah, he. Uh, this was a star-making role for him. He uh, he became a leading actor in, in Westerns after this. Yeah, he's he's fun. It's always nice to to have that uh, foil um, because a lot of, yeah, a lot of the spaghetti Westerns, you have just this dull, uh, laconic lead, and you're just like, all, all right. So it's always nice to have, um, you know, the guy who's a bit of a buffoon or something, um, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why for me, Fistful of Dollars has never been really one of my favorites just because, um, you know, outside of the coffin maker, I'm just like, I don't want to hang out with the, just the man with no name for a whole movie, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you need, you need, you need like Tuco and the good, the bad and the ugly to kind of liven things up a bit. Yeah. Or even a Colonel Mortimer or something. So, but yeah, he's the, he's a nice drunken buffoon. Uh, I guess he's he's the David Lambert to uh, Franco Nero's uh, uh, <laughs> Eric Zaldivar. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Eric Zaldivar, he's only about killing and the money. He cares about nothing else. Nothing else. <laughs> yeah, but that's one of my favorite tropes. Like, I mean, We'll get into it later on, but that's what I thought found to be almost kind of like adorable about one after another is how the character of Stan, he's just like, he likes to kill and he likes money and he doesn't really care about being nice or being polite and just as long as you don't fuck with his glasses like uh he's pretty much indestructible and anyway we'll, we'll, we'll get to him uh, a little later on but let's uh let's dip into god forgives i don't written and directed by giuseppe colisi if i'm saying that correctly and uh, for whatever reason americans i've been a lifelong movie fan i've even enjoyed westerns most of my life and even for me i'm still largely ignorant of most of the bud spencer and terrence hill films and tony stella talks oftentimes about how Sometimes some of these regional dialects in um, Italian films make them difficult to translate for foreign audiences. But Tony's got Italian heritage as well as German heritage. He grew up in Germany where Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill were massive. But uh, God forgives, I don't. It's the first time they're on screen together. And they're such a great study in contrast. But Eric, do you have any theories as to why this comedic duo was such a sensation internationally but never quite took off in America? Well, we should also know that this is the first time they are a duo on screen. This is not a comedy, far from it. Uh, but they were, they did share a film together uh, in 1959 called Hannibal, which is, I believe, a Victor Mature uh, vehicle. Uh, they're not in the same scene together, but they are in the same film together. Um, why was Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer a success everywhere but in america i think the only person who could really tell you that are italians um or the international market it's 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 uh it's a mystery to me i don't know uh i think perhaps that that sort of slapsticky com first of all the comedy duo thing uh, where there would be lauren hardy and abbott and costello that was already on the outs by the 1970s that 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 was not a thing for 20 years so that probably has something to do with it. But even then, uh, you had like, um, oh, like uh, Richard Pryor and uh, what's his fucking name? Uh, oh my god, t totally blanking on uh, Gene Wilder. Gene like, Wilder. But yeah, so was, you had some comedy duos in the seventies. But they're not like abusing each other. Um, gotcha. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it was. I think it's a different kind of comedy entirely. I, I don't know. There was there was something about those movies were made for kids. The the Terrence Hill Bud Spencer films. They were gotcha. made for kids, and I think that's why we're seeing them come back now because a lot of people that grew up with that stuff they're now older and but they were they were huge and i can't really answer that as you can tell with my rambling response i can't answer why they were not hits in america well, I remember my, my, my trainer he's a german four or five yeah. years ago he mentioned bud spencer and terrence hill and i was like who he's like what do you mean who they're, like, they're the biggest stars in the world and i was like 
not here. They're not. And then uh, but shortly thereafter, I saw they, they called me Trinity. But um, yeah, it's just it's amazing to me that they just, for whatever reason, were just a non-event. Even though I was a little kid, one of the first movies they ever saw was Superfuss, starring Terrence Hill, directed by Sergio Corbucci. I had no idea that it was an Italian movie, but for whatever reason on HBO and cable, it got played over and over and over. Right as cable arrived, that they just played that round the clock. I, I have no idea why. So that was my exposure to uh, to those two to, to to Terrence Hill. It was probably in the case of HBO, it was probably cheap to show. They yeah. bought it, you know, nothing, and you know. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I've heard many stories from Americans like they they know who Terrence Hill without even realizing who Terrence Hill is because they if they grew up at the time they were watching Superfuss. Yeah, but he's just a fucking ninja. I love him. The way he moves, he's so athletic and so lithe. He can do the physical comedy, but also just great fight scenes. And I just, his acts of dexterity, he's almost like on the level of Buster Keaton or Jackie Chan in terms of how he moves. And then, of course, you get into like the, uh, the fast-paced photography and stuff like that. I, I guess I'm thrilled that I still have a, a cool star like whose work I'm largely unfamiliar with to, uh, for, for me to check out their movies. But the only real grievance against God Forgives I Don't is that he's not dubbed by himself. But goddamn, he's, he's also just... He's one of those dream boats like Leonardo DiCaprio or Brad Pitt. He's just he's a great looking dude. So, yeah, I wish Terrence Hill had a, uh, a a bigger rep here in America. Yeah, I mean, he's rarely dubbed by himself. Well, how would you describe it in those comedies where he has kind of that wispy sort of, oh, yeah, like that? That's like sort my of name dub? is nobody. I think my name is nobody is yeah. one of the few that I've seen where he actually has his voice like from, uh, you know, a few years later. Uh, yeah, he would en- he would end up imitating his dubbers. Is basically what would go down there. Gotcha. But, but yeah, God forgives. I don't. I think out of the list I gave you, this might be my favorite one. I think it's the one that's uh, probably closest to an American movie. And the way I what I say about that is is I'm I'm talking about the script wise. It seems like there's an actual thought put into the plot, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to having comic book setups. I I like it. It's basically Rashomon. Uh, there's a crime is committed, and uh, there's a guy who's investigating from different perspectives and you get their own perspective on on what happened and uh some people might be lying you know some perspectives may be wrong or skewed or in, in some yeah. form or other. i i agree outside of outside of the original django this one is my favorite of the bats that we're talking about um i i this is one i'd seen years ago and and uh, re-watching it was yeah a lot of fun and like you say it is, it feels, I mean, it's still very much spaghetti, but it feels more like a, like an American Western. It is better put together. The music is not a Morricone riff. It's not like surf music, you know, <laughs> How like dare surf you? Music or whatever, which, you know, I'm not, that's not, I love Morricone and stuff, but, but um, the, but the music in it, uh, they got. They have some ragtime. They've got a ragtime band playing. Yeah, and they stuff. got a straight up New Orleans funeral at one point. Exactly, and then then just the way it's shot, the even even like early on the composition between you know you see these card players and they're composed between like uh, t- like these two gun belts hanging on a rack and stuff, um, and then just also uh, having Frank Wolf as the villain. He's great. Like he's usually, you know, he's usually the comedy in a movie, and you know, everyone loves the Great Silence. I always kind of, when I watch it, go like the the, the Frank Wolf comedy stuff. I'm like, get this out of here. <laughs> so, but to have him as the villain 
is great where he's saying saying funny stuff and his guys are laughing and then he's shut up and then he says says something else funny and they laugh shut up you know so Frank Wolf is a great villain and everything yeah this one I mean you know I, I, after a certain point it starts to drag a little bit like you know like most spaghetti westerns honestly um but uh but overall I thought this one well, it's got a what? great dramatic hook where you've got two guys dueling in a burning down house and one of whom gets away with the, the loot and the other whom the gang believes got away with the loot. So suddenly Terrence Hill is being pursued and chased by these old gang members anywhere, whether he's gambling, bathing, whatever. And that's a great way to get the plot up and running and immediately just like snares your attention. Yeah, and it and it and it and even though it starts to drag once they start the monsters start dragging the trunk around and 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 when you have like Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill kind of you know bickering and stuff that 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 stuff it's like not my favorite but um, but especially in the first part it, it moves real quick a lot of funny stuff of like you know uh, <laughs> you know like. Uh, the part where the the Mexican dude's coming in to get Ter- Terrence Hill, and then some like prostitute comes up to him and says, "Buy me a drink, stranger," and he just pushes her down. It's 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 really horrible, but it's just uh, there's a lot of funny move moments, and it just kind of moves from that to hit like shooting him to him in the bathtub, and guys are trying to kill him. Like it it's paced just w- way better than most of these movies. So yeah, this one this one I enjoyed uh, uh, a lot more uh, than a lot of them, and we I'd be remiss if we don't mention the fact that uh, Terrence Hill's character's name is Cat Stevens. So <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is actually the first in a trilogy. It's normally just uh, considered the Cat Stevens trilogy. I don't know if there's any connection oh. to the musician. I don't <laughs> particularly think so. Uh, the second one would be this, East this High. Is, bef- is this is this before Cat? This this is before Cat Stevens. This Steven. is '67, so I mean, what is this? I don't. I think this is around the same time Cat Stevens would be a known commodity, right? The, wow. the singer was born in '48, so I don't yeah, know when he, he, first music. His on Wikipedia, his, his early music career starts '66, so it might be yeah. a situation just like a cosmic coincidence where they're both coming into their own at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that's very very interesting. And then the later the later ones were when Terrence Hill uh, is uh, changes his name to Yusuf Islam. Those ones kind of fall off. <laughs> <laughs> it gets really weird, you know. You don't want to see that. <laughs> yeah, well, no. but I love how in God forgives, I don't feel like they have this one trope that's used in so many of these. Where obviously Terrence Hill's a total badass, but he's got a his kryptonite is that he can't swim. And so the obligatory two-thirds mark, instead of getting his ass kicked, well, he gets his ass kicked, but they drop him into a well, and they keep pulling him up and dropping him down and so on and so forth. And I think it's much like if you take away Toshiro Mifune's sword and Yojimbo, he's nothing. Like he, They just beat him within an inch of his life. But the moment he gets his sword back, all bets are off. And the same thing here. As long as Terrence Hill can stay away from the water, he's, I mean, he's, he's like the reverse Aquaman, but <laughs> you drop him in a well, he's, he's, he's done for. And I think these are kind of silly kind of comic book tropes but as someone who loves fucking comic books i totally eat that kind of stuff up yeah i guess the water thing is the connection with his name being cat i believe the working title for the film was the cat the dog and the fox the dog being uh well, obviously the cat we know who that would be uh the fox the dog being bud spencer and the fox being frank wolf's bill san antonio uh the villain 
Um, yeah, you, uh, Lambert, you mentioned the bickering between Spencer and Hill. I mean, that's definitely of echoes of what were to come, you know, in the future between those two. Uh, they even have a fight that wouldn't be out of place in a in a what you would expect from a Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer comedy. Was this ever redubbed or recut as a comedy, or was it allowed just to kind of stay as it was? I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, apparently I've never seen it, um, uh, so I don't know the validity of it. But apparently the Germans did redub this one and one of the other ones in the trilogy to be a comedy. But uh, the Giuseppe Calizzi is the director, and and uh, he has to be given credit. Um, I like the movie a lot. Uh, after this, it's sort of uh, diminishing returns for me, although a lot of people like the second one more than, than any of the other ones. I disagree. Um, but it's the only Spaghetti Western series that I can think of, and we're including Man With No Name in that, we're including the Leone movies, where there's actual continuity. There's uh, ref- gotcha, yeah. The Man With No Name, there's zero continuity. Yeah, I mean, it's, right. uh, it's almost kind of bewildering to people. But, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, actual continuity. The opening of the second one, Ace High, they're they're dragging in what's left of the villain from the first movie, which they blow up with dynamite. I think it's just his boots to collect the bounty. So there's a mention of that. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in the third film, Boot Hill, which is sort of circus-oriented. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and when I say sort of, I mean it, it is. Uh, <laughs> I believe... Not to interrupt, but yeah, I... Uh... Years ago, I took uh, I took uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time to see um, Once Upon a Time in the West at the New Beverly, and they had all these trailers for spaghetti westerns, and they had the trailer for Boot Hill, which was a movie that I had owned but I'd never watched, and the trailer looked so fucking awesome. And she was like, we have to watch this. We have to watch this. So then we go, oh, I put it on, and I was like, oh, my God, most of this movie is just fucking – the circus. <laughs> it, was, it was such a drop in quality, and and Ace High was 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 one of those spaghettis that I found like on VHS, um, uh, completely not knowing any connection to the other films, just because Eli Wallach was in it, uh, basically doing a riff on his Tuco character. And yeah, it's it's diminishing returns. It's a shame sh- that Boot Hill didn't take off and create an entire subgenre of spaghetti westerns that take place in and around the circus. Well, well they as they went on, they become. Yeah. There is a subgenre of that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, Eric, you could probably probably touch upon that even more. But as the spaghettis go on before they before they just com- completely became like just comedies, they started incorporating, you know, guys doing flips and this and that and bouncing on trampolines and all that. So they become the action. They take it to a level of, uh, of yeah, circus hijinks uh, not, not long after this. Eric, if you were to guess, how many Western fans are there out there who have seen every single movie on your video, every fucking Django movie, which I think is 85 movies? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know my audience, what little there is to begin with on that I'm one. Because like, obviously there's, there's the Western fan or Western audience is there, but I wouldn't say it's like a dominant yeah. trend. And then you've got your Spaghetti Western fans, which is a smaller group. And then you've got your Django fans, which is a smaller group. But of the Django fans who have seen all the Django movies, it can't be more than like, what, 10 or 15 people? Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's true. You've got to keep in mind, too, that... Um, the people that would watch, like go out of their way to watch all the Django movies, as you said, is already a limited amount of people. But I also have stuff. Those people are Western fanatics and there's not all those movies are Westerns, as I pointed out. Like there's yep. like, what, four or five of them that weren't. So I doubt most of them are watching Venus and Furs, you know. 
And I wish I didn't either. I wish I was part of that club. You better never cry. A man like you should never shed. move on to the the next Django flick which is uh Django prepare a coffin aka Viva Django not to be confused with the Viva Django that came out a couple years later this is the Viva Django from 1968 which I guess one is a comma one does not I don't I don't want to interrupt but I kind of interrupted Eric's anecdote I I want to let him finish whatever whatever point he was trying to make before which anecdote was it the circus one I don't know I mean the reason the reason Ace High was widely available in America is because the Eli Wallach connection I think MGM or Paramount uh, owns the rights to that, and they have a pretty decent, nice uh, DVD that came out like 15 years ago on it. But the other two, particularly God Forgives I Don't, which regularly plays TCM, uh, the cut version of it, um, that doesn't have a release in the United States. And Boot Hill, I guess Quasi has a release. Everybody kind of owns Boot Hill in the way that everybody owns Night of the Living Dead. It comes in like yeah, a box yeah. set, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, just, it's thrown on on everything. Right. Yeah. But it's uh, four by five and it's pan and scan and it's terrible. It's a shame because it's actually even though it's not like a like a very entertaining film, it's actually a really good looking movie. Khalid's yeah. movie very good looking. Yeah, he's yeah, visually he's a great director and I think this one is one of the more visually appealing of uh of all the ones that that we've watched. My question is, um I don't think we touched upon it. Uh, what what is the Django connection? Is just that this was retitled as a Django in Germany or something? Where does it have, um, where does it become a Django, uh, part becoming part of the the whole Django uh, knockoff thing? 
Yeah, no, I mean, as I said, like all of these things are, are mostly just redubbed into Django uh, uh, with Django names in order to cash in to fool people to get inside and to the theater yeah. and pay them money. And yeah, so this is definitely, it, I mean, they do drag around a large box. That's, that's it, it, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously not made to be a Django ripoff, but in, in, is this, was this just a Django movie in Germany? Where was this considered a Django movie? At in what Ger point? Was it retitled? Just this is just a B. This is just a German one, right? This is a German one, yeah. This is. A German oh, okay. right. I think the movie works really well. Even to, I saw I, I rewatched it the other day. I, I think it still holds up. It's one of the few on the list that do. For well, me, it's got a uh, fucking amazing opening, which always helps. You get that train pulling into station full of dead bodies, and you get this crazy montage of like how how that came to be. Like every filmmaker out there should keep that in mind. Like if you're gonna make a movie. Grab people's attention within the first couple of minutes, because otherwise you might not ever ever give it get it back. And also, I saw on uh, Wikipedia, on, uh, maybe on IMDb, that this was the highest uh, domestic box office performer in Italy in 1967. That's some obscure film. God forgives I don't was a monster runaway success. At, it was a monster theater. hit. It was the beginning of their team ups together. It would be yeah. a few films before they would actually find their groove into into comedy, but. Yeah, I mean, this is what started it for them. Well, I think was it in one of your videos where I heard that in the, the late 60s in Italy, two Westerns were coming out a week. I, I don't think people realize, like, in an era in 2020 where maybe a handful of Westerns come out globally in a given year, the idea of two Western feature films coming out a week, and it's like, well, that's basically like, almost like a TV show. It's just a TV show where they're not interconnected. Yeah, uh, in 1968 was the the genre's most prolific year. It was make it was. Uh, Two films, at least, were released every Friday or whenever they would release films back then. That would be Westerns. In some cases, in anomaly-type scenarios during the year, it would be three. I mean, that's so. a fuckload of Westerns. I love Westerns. I don't know if I'd want to go see two or three new Westerns every goddamn, <laughs> every goddamn it's, weekend. Especially not these. You know, there's not a lot of them that are actually <laughs> Yeah, that'll, that'll take uh, you to the breaking point of your interest. I, I, you know, you know, I, I could probably handle that. You know, it depends on how much booze I'm sneaking into the theater. Um, but uh, one, one of the Trinity films, David, right? It's, it's Italy. You, you were able to bring in booze in the theater. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Uh, one of, the, but, but later, one of the Trinity films would be the, would be the highest grossing. Was it the first Trinity or the second Trinity? Would be the highest grossing uh, Italian film of all time up to that point. Like the first one talking. grossed. The first one grossed more. Yes, correct. The first one grossed more than a fistful of dollars, which got Leone jealous, and that's why he ended up doing My Name Is Nobody, starring Terrence Hill. Gotcha. Which is yeah. uh, I know kind of sort of directed by him, kind of sort of not. His name is not listed as director, but apparently he was. As, as he was making his presence known on the set. There yeah. was a few, yeah. He directed a few scenes, um, but he was mostly at a producer's capacity. The seat, the quasi sequel to that. David and I were talking about it before recording. Um, uh, the quasi sequel to My Name Is Nobody, a, a genius, a partner. I'm sorry. Oh God, a genius, yeah. two partners, and a dupe. A genius, yeah. two partners, and a dupe, aka a genius, two partners, and, and a chicken. Depends on which one you're watching. <laughs> so has a wonderful, wonderful opening sequence that a la his opening sequence of Once Upon a Time in the West. It's it's no dial or hardly any dialogue. Um, it, I think it surpasses the, the West sequence, actually. And wow. then the movie yeah. complete crap. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I fucking it love is, My uh, Name is Nobody, so I need to see the sequel. Well, well, it's like uh, the, this opening sequence is it shot in Monument Valley, and it's this guy, he thinks there's like some Indians going to attack him or something. And he's opening all these windows and, and all that. And, and it's clearly Leone shot it. It's one of the best scenes that he's ever shot. And the rest of the movie is just 
garbage. It's a it's a it's a remake of this weird French film with Gerard Depardieu. I can't remember the name of it, but it was recently remade as the um, Big Lebowski unofficial sequel, the, the 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 Jesus whatever rolls or whatever. So this is like a spaghetti western remake of this French film, um, and it just as as it went on, it got more ridiculous. Uh, but that opening sequence is 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 absolutely amazing. But uh, but uh, for a few hours more was wasn't that that was the that was the number one spaghetti western or no the number one Italian film for the longest time until uh, one of the Trinity films knocked it off. Right? It was for a few hours more was the most successful in Italy of of the Dollars trilogy. Right? I thought I thought it was a fistful of dollars and. Um... To be honest, it's hard to. Yeah, I thought it was a fistful of dollars, so I we we might have to consult. Well, I know that Akira Kurosawa made more money off a fistful of dollars when he sued than any of his other yeah. movies. I think someone said, I think that the fact that I read was that if you take all the money Kurosawa made off his entire filmography oh, from his Japanese movies, it's less money than he got when he sued a fistful of dollars and got got a big chunk because it was such a massive hit. So, uh, yeah. yeah, that. That's actually I, I, I wanted to bring that up when we were talking about Django. I, I, I mentioned it to Eric. Uh, what, what's interesting is that uh, a Fistful of Dollars, when it was it released in Japan, it was called um, Wilderness Bodyguard. And it was under, I think, to, Toho something, um, you know, through through Kurosawa. And uh, Django was then released in Japan as a unofficial sequel to a fistful of dollars and it was retitled continuation wilderness bodyguard. <laughs> so, so, so what, 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 what is interesting is that, you know, Django is considered this movie that had all these unofficial sequels retitled, repurposed, or just, they're actually just trying to dress a guy up like Franco Nero and doing that or whatever. But in Japan, Django started as an unofficial sequel to a different movie with that had been retitled. So it's just funny to see it, um, you know, uh, uh, in the same context as so many of the pretenders. And also, Wilderness Bodyguard is just a great title. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, well, let's move on to Django Prepare a Coffin, which is a title I prefer over Viva Django, but I know, uh, Eric, you pitched it to us as Viva Django from 68, so what is going on with this movie that actually does actually officially have Django in the title? Yeah, I mean, I know it as Viva Django. Um, the Italian uh, original title, I guess if you want to call it that, is uh, Prepara la Vara, which is just get a, get your coffin. Um, no Django in the title. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's largely considered to be... Uh, quote-unquote, an official sequel to the original, um, but not really. It started out as one. I originally had Franco Nero involved, but Franco went off to Hollywood to make Camelot. And so they had to scrape together another actor, and they got uh, Terrence Hill, who at the time they just made to look like Franco Nero. I mean, I mean, honestly, Terrence Hill, I mean, is... It's, it's almost uncanny how much he actually looks like him. This yeah. isn't like... This isn't like many of the uh, Django knockoffs where it's just kind of some swarthy, <laughs> you know, Mediterranean-looking dude. Um, I mean, uh, you'd be hard-pressed. I, I work in forensic. I work, I work in, like, facial structure, facial features, everything. And, uh, and uh, the, two, the two of them look 
look almost identical. It's it is well, hard. I would to say tell the them. only distinction is that I feel like Nero is a little like like brawnier, and that yeah. Terrence Hill's a little like dreamier. But they are very uh, like they they could easily be first cousins uh, or from the same family tree. I would have said stockier, but don't tell Franco that. Gotcha. Yeah, I just feel like uh, something about Terrence Hill. I just love the way he is so dexterous and so acrobatic in his performances. And I really noticed that big time. And like, my name is nobody. If he's hopping on a saddle, he doesn't just get on the on the saddle. He will like leap off the ground and land on it. He's just he's like I said, he's a, he's a little fucking like Russian circus acrobat. And I just find that to be so delightful. That additional quality that he brings to the western. And you haven't really seen a lot of that since like the silent era. Well, it was a brilliant stroke on his part, kind of starting out as a Franco Nero pretender to differentiate himself uh, as more of a comedian. It's it's uh, it's almost the Jackie Chan to Franco Nero's Bruce Lee in a way. Like, Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the, he brought he brought something completely well, like new. Like the Roger Moore to Sean Connery, like he brings something yeah. different. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the movie. A lot of people to this day still consider it either a prequel or a sequel, but I, it doesn't really work as either. Um, there's just some some factual things that don't make any sense, like his wife is 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 alive and she dies in a different way than it's portrayed in the original Django, which you don't even meet his wife. She's just a gravestone. It is what it is. I don't know how how the continuity would have worked with Franco. For all I know, it would have been just the same script. Because, you know, continuity, as we pointed out earlier, wasn't a big feature um, in these movies. So uh, the movie, honestly, doesn't really work for me. Uh, I don't really care about it. I like the concept of him being a hangman. I like that he... That was my hangs. favorite part of the movie by far. That yeah. They're like, he's sparing the lives of people condemned by a shared enemy who betrayed all of them. I was like, holy shit. That's like the coolest idea for putting together a bunch of guys on a mission that I've ever fucking heard. Exactly. It's like a man on a mission movie. Uh, I just wish it was done better. And the, you know, the ending with the machine gun in the coffin, which is obviously the, the other connection to Django, that, that, that's kind of fun. But otherwise, I, I, I don't know. I think the movie's a little bit of a bore. I mean, it's yeah, got like the Leone-esque opening animation, and I, I like the music. I, I did enjoy it on the whole backed into a corner i don't know what my favorite is of all of these but I, for whatever reason i just, i like the title i like the star i like the movie but it's like i think i might fall more into like david lambert's camp where there's like certain ingredients and details that i like and I, then i just kind of disregard and forget about and ignore the stuff that doesn't work for me yeah, oh, yeah. i think stuff to like certainly go ahead sorry i i i think because it's uh you know because this is, you know, this is the days before VHS or or even in Italy, really t a lot of television, right? So so continuity would probably not be important, and more so just uh, certain like markers that you might remember. So you know, a few years before you'd seen Django, and now you're seeing Django again, and you're like, oh yeah, he, his wife is dead, and oh yeah. Uh, Oh yeah, there was a coffin and it went into quicksand and uh, okay, so and then there was a graveyard and oh well, oh even though the coffin was full of gold in the first one, well now it's got the machine gun and oh it's a different machine gun, but oh I don't know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's just so it's it's just sort of like hitting the markers and it's almost it, it it's almost like sort of a we it's almost like you're being gaslit if you're if you're trying to uh, remember the original Django and then watching this one you're like yeah maybe it may all make sense you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> because yeah, I mean, it, has, it has all the elements, you know? Yeah, it's but, standard practice. There, there weren't a lot of sequels anyway that were big-budget sequels at the time. Sequels were rele relegated to, like, you know, B-movies and um, uh, programmers, like, I don't know, like a Charlie Chan type situation. Unless you're doing, like, James Bond. But, yeah, like, James Bond and, like, yeah. Planet of the Apes are, like, the only franchises where they had, like, pretty big budgets for each outing. Right, and yeah. arguably a lot of times James Bond movies don't have any continuity with each other anyway. But um, uh, it's just yeah. kind of... It's the same character on a different mission, and that's how that goes. But, uh, like, yeah, no, continuity wasn't really, like, a, a go-to thing until, I guess, maybe the 70s. There's there's yeah. attempts at, con like, I, I always think of dirt, the Dirty Harry series. There's attempts at continuity, but then they falter on a few different things. Like, there's one character whose name is Briggs. He gets killed in the second movie, but yet there's another character two sequels later that's also named Briggs in the same position in the same role. Uh, it's just like okay, I I'm not really following this, but but uh, they yeah, also reuse, they also reuse actors in the Dirty Harrys, right? The uh, yeah, the, yeah. I, 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 got, I got to know guy comes back. Yeah, I think yeah. he's in four of the five, perhaps. I can't remember, but I remember in college four I was like, wait five. a second, is this the same guy or is this just some weird fuckery? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's like I got to know guy in the first one. He plays the pimp in the second one. He plays the black militant in the third, and in the fourth one, he's basically Harry's de facto partner without actually being. Uh, nice. Well, it's like the filmmakers are saying, you know, that 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 um, that uh, quote by uh, Groucho Marx, right? Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're just kind of rewriting it. Um, Viva Django. Th this is uh, is this this is Baldi, right? Yes, Ferdinando Baldi. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And um, uh, he is—he's an interesting guy. He's—he's he's solid. His movies not all, are not always good, but they always have like good things about them. You know, hate your neighbor has like a this that—that's Baldi, right? You're—you're you're gonna hate, correct hate me. Thy neighbor is is Baldi. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's got that big claw fight. The rest of yeah. the movie is nonsense, but it's got a big claw fight. And then he later on went did Blind Man, which which I enjoy, and he did a lot of those Tony Anthony movies and stuff. And this one is like handsomely mounted. It has really good scenes that you'll remember. Yeah, like, like the stagecoach chase with the gold net, and the theme song kicks in. It's a pretty badass high speed sh shootout. Yeah, that, and that theme song. I mean, we we would be remiss even though. Anyone probably listening to this probably already knows, but that that is the basis for the Gnarls Barkley song "Crazy." Uh, so yeah, right. I'm talking. About, uh, this is the correct movie, right? I, yeah, I gotta, exactly. Yeah, uh, the, a piece watch. of the film score, <laughs> "Last Man Standing," was sampled in the song "Crazy" by uh, Gnarls Barkley. Yeah, yeah, all of which you can find out on my video. Every fucking Django movie. It's on which YouTube. I, I watched it twice. It was a fantastic YouTube video. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, well. I remember uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Heather. Uh, I remember we were in a Walmart or something, and Crazy was playing, and I was like, uh, I was like, oh yeah, you know, this is uh, this is from an old spaghetti western called Viva Django, and she goes, oh yeah, I know, I know the guy who produced it, Dan Danielle Lupi. Uh, so I, you know, <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah. So if you are a fan of the song Crazy. At least give this one a give give this one a look just for the music. Wait a second. Uh, wait, a second. wait a second. Expand on that Walmart story. How how did this person know Daniele Lupe? Well, oh well, it's a mutual friend of ours. 
Uh, oh, uh, oh, 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 okay. Heather, Heather, Heather D'Agostine. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and yeah, so I was, I was uh, telling her, but, but uh, you know, her husband is no spaghetti westerns and all that. So I was, you know, trying to trying to drop some kind of you know spaghetti western nerd trivia on her, and she she was already up to speed. Uh, but um, your knowledge will profit you nothing with me. I'm unimpressed. <laughs> Yeah, she was very unimpressed. Um, but uh, but uh, this Viva Django is one that I think a lot of times you'll get, I feel, contrarians who, because it's not completely incompetent or anything, will kind of go, well, this was this is even better than the original Django. And uh, I don't that, think that I do at, not, at all. That view no. I do not share at all. Yeah. Like Django on its own, even if you don't even like westerns or don't like spaghetti westerns there's a chance you're going to get into Django it helps if you like westerns but Django is a complete movie and that's why it was remade and ripped off so many fucking dozens of times yeah and the, and and the, and the whole thing about like he's a hangman and you know he spares them to get the his revenge whatever that's cool and that would be cool like with a different character i feel um I it just betrays the character well, you know, I mean, honestly, to, I mean, let's be honest. Django is not a He's great not a character. character. Yeah, no. <laughs> we pointed that out already. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but the, uh, just the idea that he would uh, try to enlist an army of these criminals to do his bidding, it's just like, no, I don't, I don't really see that. One of the, one of the aspects of Django is that he has this fucking machine gun because he doesn't want to work with anyone, you yeah, know? He can he can kill and, 70 guys in a fight if if need be. Yeah, and and the other thing is like it ends with this machine gun massacre which is not poorly done. It's pretty cool, but but uh when you watch the original Django, that machine gun massacre is I don't even know what's halfway through the movie. It's like the climax. They you know like you're, you're, it's building, and you're like, "What's this guy's deal?" And then you just have this like a typical climax to any other movie is just right there in the middle of the film. So this one trying to make us wait until he actually pulls his machine gun and shoots a couple guys in a graveyard. It's like, eh, it, 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 it's, it's not poorly done. It just pales in comparison to what you're expecting out of you know Django. And uh, the first film that you saw, there was no suspense to that machine gun because you have no idea. Like he's just digging his own grave. Whereas in the first one, he's dragging that thing for half an hour. So it's like, what is this? Like you said, what's his deal? What's in there? What's what's the big mystery? So that's why it works in the first one and not so much in the second. We don't we're not introduced to any coffin until the last 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like uh, it's like watching a sequel to Star Wars or something. And then only in the last like five minutes, he pulls out a lightsaber and you're supposed to be impressed. And it's like, <laughs> and it's like, well, I've seen this, you know. Did the Italians um, ever dive into unofficial Star Wars knockoffs and remakes and sequels in the late 70s, early 80s? Yes, a few films, very few. <laughs> yeah, Star- yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess what- like Dina De Laurentiis. Well, on a big scale, with like something like uh, Flash Gordon was trying to cash in on the Star Wars craze, but um, less successfully, in spite of the rockin' soundtrack. This one repeats a few things. Um, you know, they crush his hands in this one, but it doesn't. 
uh, it doesn't really have much of an effect. I, I, I feel yeah, like they pin him down on either no. side and they're kicking him from both sides. But it's like I, I did like that bit where they pin his hands down and start kicking him. You know, maybe because once again, it was just it was the trope. It's two thirds mark. He's got to get his ass kicked. You know, in terms of uh, uh, of just the idea of Django, um, and there's a theory. I don't know if it's ever been confirmed, but the theory is that Django gets his name from Django Reinhardt, the you know jazz guitar player. He's who, a phenomenal musician. Yeah, Woody Allen's a massive fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did that whole Sean Penn movie about him. Yeah, but uh, but uh, you know he he had some kind of accident or whatever, and and he developed a whole different style of guitar playing. Yeah, he had like melted, burned fingers, and he couldn't use two of the fingers, I believe, on his left hand, the hand that he's using on the frets. So he developed a different way of fingering the frets from a conventional person who has use of four fingers on the frets. Yeah, so, so the whole thing in the original Django, which is still actually a scene that you kind of, I wince from, because it looks it looks so real, the horses stepping on his hands and getting his hands smashed and stuff. And so, but that he's the ability that he uses that because because you know Django Reinhardt developed a whole new style of playing music from def his deformed hands, right? So it's like Django can still outshoot everyone with his deformed hands, and uh, and I also feel that that's a holdover from. Um, one-eyed jacks when Marlon Brando gets his gun hand smashed by Carl Malden. I think that they were kind of um, possibly inspired by that. A lot of people consider one-eyed jacks. And Man from Laramie, which is even earlier, the Anthony Mann film with Jimmy Stewart, they shoot him through his hand in that as well. So oh. probably the most hardcore scene of Anthony Mann's career. Oh, yeah, yeah. That Oh, that's definitely true. Um, but I think that like the... Um, I think that in terms of and Eric, I don't know. I, I want your opinion on this in terms of just spaghetti westerns, but um, like I think Vera Cruz is like one of the big influences on spaghetti westerns, and then I think One Eye Jacks, and I feel that 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 hand mangling and then practicing and coming back later is a trope that they that they kind of look to. What do you think, Eric? Uh, we had a discussion about that too. Uh, we neglected to mention One-Eyed Jacks, but I believe you said that uh, Vera Cruz was basically the first spaghetti western, and I agree with that. You know. And oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I also think that, in terms of proto spaghetti westerns, Vera Cruz, and then I and I think One-Eyed Jacks has, uh, I think, a lot of the tropes. Oh yeah, no, no, One-Eyed Jacks definitely. I mean, I remember seeing that, and I had seen One-Eyed Jacks. Shortly after Django, and I remember uh, it was striking to me the uh, the hand crushing sequence uh, where he ties him to the I think it was a hitching post, uh, and I was like, oh wow, that, that's probably a Django influence, or the other way around, yeah. it's probably an influence. Yeah. On yeah, and then the whipping and stuff, and then and then even going back to Massacre Time, they don't they don't really necessarily have like the hand crushing hero has to heal come back thing, but in the end sequence. The villain is smashing Franco Nero's hands as he's hanging off the ledge and all that. Yeah. And watching that, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is this is uh, this is kind of yeah, I could see this is sort of a Django sort of thing." So, Eric, do you ever find yourself in a situation where you've got complete spaghetti western kind of Django burnout, or is it a, a topic where you? Because I feel like as long as you're discovering new good movies on a particular front, 
it's easy to sustain your interest in a particular topic. But once you exhaust all the essential viewing experiences, that's when my interest in a particular topic starts to wane. But where do you find yourself now in uh, 2020? Oh, I, I, I've been burnt out for almost a decade now. Um, I, <laughs> that's as, awesome. I said, I, as I said earlier, I do this just to like I, I do the videos and stuff to just uh, exercise the the demons of my misspent youth. You know? Gotcha. Uh, well, it's like I when you've got all this useless like trivia bouncing around your skull, you got to find an outlet for it. And so, what better place than YouTube to to share yeah, all exactly. that? It's like for me, uh, I've got too much knowledge about particular uh, comic book franchises or characters or series and it's like information that can never be utilized or there's no outlet for it unless I just say you know what I'm just going to do a top 100 stories about so and so and uh, but yeah but well hopefully we're allowing you to process some or exercise some of the demons of your misspent youth on this podcast yeah happy to do it I I just yeah no it's uh, if somebody out there likes to listen to it then great well I think there are a lot of people out there like me where we like Westerns, we like spaghetti Westerns, but we have not, there's still many, many stones to look under. And so I'm still in the process of looking under stones. Anytime somebody pitches either Japanese or Italian genre films from a particular period, I always say yes, because there's so much left for me to discover. And those are my favorite episodes where I get to see a lot of movies I've never seen before. And speaking of which, let's get into one of the movies that I thought was one of the most interesting Structurally, and that's Death Sentence from 1968, written and directed by Mario Lanfranchi, if I'm saying that correctly.
I really enjoyed, it was almost felt like an anthology Western film where we got this one character with four different stories where he's hunting down different people who murdered his brother. And I thought the first story in particular was fucking riveting. But uh, who wants to uh, take the ball and run with it when it comes to the death sentence? Well, you said it better than I could. Yes, that's the structure of the film. It's episodic. Uh, it focuses. There's four villains, and the hero, when he goes to one villain, the, the for the next 20 or 30 minutes, you're going to be focused on that one particular villain and his eccentricities, whether it be he's a gambler, uh, so that episode will be gambling-based, uh, or if he is a, <laughs> a crazed priest, and the last one is um, uh, an albino, you know. Uh, who loves gold or whatever? So yeah, no, you said it. You said it better than I could. It's um, it it does have that structure. There was one film that came out the same exact year. I, I neglect to find to know which one came out first. That was very similar. It's uh, Antonio Margariti's uh, Vengeance with. What about uh, Francois Truffaut's The Bride Wore Black? It's like same kind of like revenge same structure. Kind of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Same kind of thing. Yeah, I was I was talking in terms of spaghetti westerns, but yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, but like right. revenge stories never get old. I mean, no matter what era you live in, no matter what medium you're telling your stories with, people love tales of murder and revenge. It's a tale as old as time itself, and I have a feeling a thousand years from now, people will still be taking a crack at it. But you got some really cool actors like Richard Conti, who I who obviously has been in a million things, but I always think of him as Barzini and uh, The Godfather. And I just love how you within the first vignette, the first little short story. Even within that one quarter of the film, structurally, it's got makes multiple uses of flashbacks to different points to kind of help you get up to speed in the way it kind of circles back like a snake eating its own tail. And as I was watching, I was thinking like, whoa, the writing here and the structure here is way more sophisticated than a spaghetti western ever really needs to employ. But I, I was applauding it all the same. Yeah, um, no, no, Jacobean plays are uh, our universal language. And um, that's probably why this one still works. I, I was watching, I rewatched it with Lambert and we were, <laughs> we were both actually not, we were enjoying it for the wrong reasons. Um, this used to be a big favorite of mine. Um, I, I, I was hammered, honestly, I was yeah. hammered. I refuse <laughs> to believe that David Lambert has, uh, had <laughs> fallen prey to uh, the allure of booze. But uh, you like the first sequence. Explain to me, um, and I remembered this from my youth, but uh, explain to me what sense does it make that the uh, Robin Clark, I believe is that actor's name, who never went on to do much else, uh, he looks a little bit like Steve McQueen, don't you think, in some shots? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so he's got Richard Conti. Uh, basically, I like the idea of it. Richard Conti bought all this land with his ill-gotten gains, so now Robin Clark, the hero or the anti-hero, is make is dragging him or, or making him forcing him. He's gonna say. kill him with his land. Yeah, he's forcing him to traverse this desert land that he owns, uh, with no water. But here's the thing that I don't understand. The guy with the gun is allowing himself to be chased by the guy without a gun. Yeah, like he's out of, <laughs> like he's out of range. I get that, but shouldn't it be Robin Clark is racing through the desert with the water and and Conti is is you know uh, chasing him it doesn't make any sense how it's dare so you apply logic and rational thinking to a spaghetti western you're just spoiling the whole fun asking a lot i know but. yeah this one has this sort of narrative conceit of like uh, you know each chapter of revenge or whatever and there's supposed to be some kind of ironic twist but it feels like it feels like they needed a rewrite. <laughs> like, like it feels like it feels like they shot the first draft or not even a draft, and and so you're throughout you're kind of like, 
okay, uh, I guess, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it's like they were kind of doing a, a, you know, a Blondie Tuco sort of drag him through the desert and, and uh, wait, the first is the first sequence is when he gets to the well or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the well's dry. Yeah. 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 And, and so, yeah, it's yeah, it, it, this this is one that is um, it's 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 interesting and it has cool stuff, but it's like, oh, yeah, it needed another pass and it, <laughs> it needed it needed a polish. But for people polish. who like certain actors and certain villains from other movies, having like the villain from James Bond film, the James Bond film Thunderball show up. I was like, fuck yeah, that's a, a proper villain from a proper franchise. Or having um, uh, with Thomas Millian showing up as the the albino. It, it, Thomas Millian apparently frowned upon the movie and was has said has some disparaging remarks, but said that he thought his part was really good. And so I guess which is kind of a compliment. And so once again, in the spirit of ultra spaghetti westerns, it has certain bits and moments and ingredients that I love. And then the rest, I just kind of uh, give, give, give it a pass. Maybe I am too kind to certain genre films where I just give things a pass because I'm in the mood to enjoy them, but I had no problem kind of giving myself over to it. I, I, I gave it a pass a million times when I was when I was younger. You know, my frontal lobe hadn't developed yet, so I was I was okay. But well, David, we should talk about. Uh, you already mentioned James uh, Adolfo Celli, uh, the Thunderball villain. Mention uh, that that sequence and how how uh, full blown retarded that stuff is. Um. Uh, oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're not allowed to use that word. That's gonna have to be wrong. Real, you can use whatever <laughs> words you like. I. I well, uh, I've, I've no. used the word many times on this podcast, but I always try to uh, get myself out of jail by using only in reference to myself. Like, oh my God, I was so fucking drunk. I was goddamn retarded while I was watching that movie. So, yeah, I, I use the word pretty liberally on this show. Uh, well, well, I mean, we're talking about the bullet, the bullet right? Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, one of, my, one of my favorite things. I mean, just just movies in general, like their, 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 their understanding of like... Uh, you know how guns work is obviously, especially spaghetti westerns, always off base. You'll oftentimes see, even in like a good movie, something like Twelve Monkeys or whatever. Uh, you know, they're like, "Oh, we found this bullet in your leg, and it's just an entire. It's it's got the bullet, it's got the casing, it's got everything, as if this like carrot long bullet just penetrated a guy's leg, and that's how guns work. So this has this scene where." What does he do? Does he dig it? He, he digs, digs it out with a rock. Yeah, he gets <laughs> yeah, shot he digs, in the leg, I believe. Yeah, he and digs, digs it out, out with a dig, rock. He digs out digs the slug with a rock. Slug. Then he puts the slug back into, <laughs> into somehow, the cylinder of the revolver. Yeah. He somehow uh, attaches it to the shell casing. Oh, right. That has sand? He Does he put some sort of puts, sand? He in puts it? sand in it, which is not yeah. gunpowder, and therefore, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, yeah. and then is able to shoot a guy in the face with it. Um, not a thing to do. If anyone ever shoots you in the leg uh, and you want revenge, I would like to recommend to anyone, do not try to dig it out and try to reuse the bullet with the shell, <laughs> with the shell casing. You need a primer. You need gunpowder. <laughs> there, there are a lot of things that go into how bullets work. So, so this is one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite uh, pieces of just illogical, um, um, you know, uh, an illogical use of of guns or bullets or firepower. Well, I think 
retarded is probably appropriate for that thing, but I'm going to post the scene all the same on Twitter. So this is David Lambert's favorite <laughs> scene from any spaghetti Western. <laughs> Listen to this podcast to find it is out not why. My, it is not my favorite <laughs> scene from spaghetti Western. You do not say that, but boy, boy, when you're a couple of screwdrivers deep and you see this on a film, that is, you are going to, you're going to enjoy yourself. It is uh it's a, it's a decent movie. It, maybe starts the idea of a villain uh, who is albino in Westerns. Well, uh, there's Life and Hounds of Judge Roy Bean. What are the other big ones? What are the other big Western albinos? Uh, Cold Mountain. Yeah, most recently, yeah. Yeah, Cold Mountain for sure. So I guess that's three. I guess that's – I don't know if three counts as a trope. But There's, uh, uh, there's an evil albino in Stick, the Burt Reynolds movie. It's not a Western. Oh, uh, <laughs> And uh, I think there's an evil albino in uh, End of Days with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But in terms of uh, spe- uh, in terms of westerns, um, these are the three albinos I can think of. So, um, and yeah, that the the idea that Thomas Millian thought the movie was shit, except that he was brilliant. That that I think is uh, I've never met Thomas Millian. I know Eric um, had a friendship with him, but uh, I think that tracks, right? <laughs> That sounds about right. I remember I uh, interviewed him on a long five-hour interview about his career, and I really wanted him to touch upon Death Sentence because there's just nothing really you can find on movies like that. I'm not even sure where you guys got that information. Was that on Wikipedia or something? Where the hell did I read that? I read it somewhere, but I can't even it's remember not where. Wrong. It's not wrong. I just want to know where it was, you know. Yeah, um, I mean, my, 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 my superficial research approach for most movies that I tackle on the podcast, I check the INDB trivia, I check Wikipedia, I see if there are any documentaries on it, and then I check those out, and then I move on with my life and move on to the next movie. But I, I can't quite remember where I found that. I just yeah. remember I, I love the Thomas Millian quote. I don't know if it's like uh, an extra on Companeros or something, but he goes, I am fucking talented. <laughs> <laughs> he is. Yeah. He's, he's not wrong. Yeah, he's not wrong. He's not 90% wrong. percent of these movies were, were, were made with the intention of just like basically fodder for the cinemas. So you don't have these Blu-ray releases with all these people coming back 50, 60 years later now. I uh, can't believe it's been that long. But uh, with interviews with people and like, oh, yeah, I remember when this and that happened. Like, you don't get that. So a lot of these movies, what happened on set were mysteries. So I really wanted to ask Tomas, like, you know, what can you make heads or tails of this movie? And the only he doesn't remember. He just says that he didn't like the movie. Well, I know. Yeah. So he was not afraid to dabble with certain mind-altering, mind-altering substances while working. And so I think in the 60s and 70s in particular, he was partying his face off while shooting a lot of these movies. Yeah. Oh, why not? Why not? Exactly. Yeah. If I'm going to be an albino in a Western, cut me some lines, give me a bottle of whiskey, and turn me loose. Yeah, I mean, I honestly want to be surprised if the being al- an albino was his idea. I mean, he later shows up as hunchbacks and, and uh, some Euro crime and, um, you know, uh, just uh, have the ability to kind of play off some kind of infirmity or disability, I think, really, uh, really got his juices going. Um, wouldn't su- I wouldn't be surprised if it was his idea, but the movie does seem to be going in that direction where the villains are getting progressively weirder. Isn't there a Euro crime film where he plays twin brothers as well? Yeah, brothers till we die. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. But anyway, I, I love Thomas Millian. I, I like him in things like, and typically like Sergio Corbucci films. Bobby, or, and also, who shot um, who made the big gun down? 
Sergio Salima. That Salima. one's damn good. I liked him quite a bit in that one. That, that might have been the first time I ever saw him in anything. So oh. anyway, he's a legend of Italian genre films, so he can kind of do no wrong in my eyes. Last official film on the list. You were nice enough to send my way. Sometimes called Day After Tomorrow, sometimes called One After Another, but 1968. Really cool flick, and you have had the opportunity to interview the uh, the star of it, who plays Stan in this movie. But I have to say, I really enjoyed this one, and much like how Sergio, I mean, I mean uh, Toshiro Mifune, he's kind of helpless without a sword, as I mentioned before. Stan, he's helpless without his glasses, and one of my favorite moments in any spaghetti western ever has to be when he unrolls the inside of his coat, showing that he's got a shitload of spares, and the whistle soundtrack kicks in right as he unrolls his stash. And I was like, all right, that is... It reminded me of um, uh, uh, Lee Van Cleef in uh, For a Few Dollars More when he's got that, like yeah. all those exotic guns on the side of his horse that he unrolls. But I was like, that's so cool. It's not weapons, it's his spectacles. Anyway, I, I had a ton of fun with this one. Colonel, Mor- Colonel Mortimer, and as, as just connecting the two... Eric kind of um, reminded me of the fact that <coughs> death sentence is, I don't know if you would call it um, not necessarily a remake, but kind of, uh, kind of uh, doing the same sort of structure as a Richard Harrison. I always want to call him George Harrison, uh, Richard Harrison, a film called vengeance, right? Uh, death sentence yeah. is sort of a, yeah, sort of a riff on the, and they both came out the same year, so I don't know. I don't know which one came first, to be honest. Yeah, oh, and, or it was just that they were that they were just kind of on the same page. That yeah. that helps with some of the spaghetti westerns to kind of parcel out the stories as opposed to trying to. The dirty secret about spaghetti westerns is that everyone thinks it's action and this and this crazy thing and all that, like most exploitation, and oftentimes it is. But your average spaghetti western is going to be probably 30 minutes of guys in like cravats and silk vests explaining plot in a in a mahogany room, you know, with a decanter of brandy. And you're like, get to the get to the rest of it. You know, everybody so, thinks you're going to get Sergio Leone every time. And uh, I think 90 percent <laughs> of them is just stylish crap. Yeah. Well, not even just that. A lot of them are just plot and it's like no one's paying attention to this plot yeah, exposition no one, dumps yeah 
no no one is paying attention to who's got the land grant or whatever kind of you know intrigue that they're trying to bring to it i try to and, follow it a bit but it's the least important part for me it's, it's but once again style over substance but we, we show up for the style over substance Definitely, definitely. So anyway, I just want—I just wanted to bring that up, the relationship, because Vengeance is um, a, a, a pretty solid film, and Death Sentence is is, is actually pretty good too, um, just because it is parceled out that way, and so that you're kind of watching little bit pieces, little chunks of things, as opposed to having to get bogged down in an entire plot. But anyway. Uh, go go ahead with the next one. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, no worries. Yeah. Day, day After Tomorrow, a.k.a. One After Another. Well, uh, Eric, since you've had a chance to interview the star in depth, laying on us, I, this, might be, this might be the first time I've seen him like carry a movie or be at the, uh, be at the focus. But I, so I listened to your interview with him, and I, so I immediately took an interest. But, man, I loved him as Stan, and he's – I love – one of the things I love about spaghetti westerns is that people that would be the villains in other movies get to be the heroes where they're just like, ah, like I hate people and I like money and I like killing. And ah, like he just, he's a surly, unlikable bastard from start to finish, but in a way that's totally adorable. Yeah. Well, I mean, if this was your first Richard Harrison movie, it doesn't get any better. Oh, uh, well, don't, don't tell me that. But anyway, he, but he, he was fantastic in this. I love it. In him. terms of like performances, like this is, this is the one where he gives an actual performance and, uh, and he's, he's just, I think he's really good in it. James, uh, you've never you've never seen the memes about the the Richard Harrison like Filipino or whatever they are. Well, movies? I know from the video that uh, that Eric posted about how all the folks over like at Red Letter Media and so on and so forth have had these like festivals of his action films from the eighties. Somehow, that whole meme culture ridiculing his action films from the eighties has just like passed me by or, or just haven't noticed or whatever. So I didn't go into this with any snarkiness or condescension. I was like, all right, well, who's this cool looking scary guy with glasses and what's his deal? But yeah. Eric, Eric, it's one of his movies that has the Garfield phone, right? Yeah, it's one of the Terminator, uh, Ninja Terminator. I think it's Ninja Terminator. I think it's one of the Ninja. Uh, definitely one of the Godfrey Ho Ninja movies. Uh, uh, I think it's, I think it's Ninja Terminator. I'm but sure. that's it. If anybody ever wants to do an episode of Wrong Reel exploring his Filipino action films, I'm game. I'm just I'm just a blank <laughs> slate. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I don't know. I, I've I, I did meet Richard Harrison. I was with my cousin who uh, Eric knows from uh, the film that we made, and we were both very hammered. And we met we met a bunch of old spaghetti western stars, but I did not ask him about the uh, uh, Garfield film. <laughs> I don't think he would have appreciated it. He he does not like those movies. <laughs> no, no, pro- probably not. Well, what can we say about one after another? Because I enjoyed it, but I can't quite tell if if y'all like it. <laughs> uh, I like it. I uh, I like the movie. I think it still holds up more or less. Um, it does a lot of things with the with the character of the antihero that you don't normally see in other formula films. Uh, he's he doesn't really kill anybody till about the forty five minute mark. Well, it's a lot of fist fights, tons of fist fights, and I think for westerns, way above average fist fights in terms of choreography. Yeah, because usually the spaghetti western fist fights are terrible, but uh, here they're pretty good. Um, they're not as good as something like uh, Juliana Gemma in California. That's a that's kind of the apex of the fist fights for that genre. Um, but, uh, yeah, 45 minutes, he doesn't kill anyone. So when he finally does kill, start killing people, which he doesn't kill too many, 
um, it kind of means something. It kind of, you know, like it's just like, oh, wow, because usually at the end of these movies, like 40 people are dead. And here there's like maybe 10 or 11. Uh, or if you want to believe the goofy theme song, only nine. <laughs> uh, towards the end, I don't know if David was able to watch it, but the last half hour, instead of having like a, a gunfight in a, in a dusty town, um, he stalks them like he's Michael Myers or something with knives. He murders them in slasher type ways. Yeah, a lot of knives yeah. to the back. A lot of like, I mean, I always love uh, spaghetti westerns where somebody with a knife beats somebody with a gun, which is nothing gonna be more absurd. But that's part of the charm of the, like the big gun down when Thomas Millian's able to duel guys with a gun with a fucking knife from like fifty yards away. It's like, yeah, that's probably not gonna happen. But it's you have to suspend your interest in reality. Yeah. You don't <laughs> just, leading up to the climax. You don't see the 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 events. You don't see him actually murder people. They just like the other yeah, henchmen. bodies showing up. It's like 10 little Indians or like and then there were none the Agatha Christie story where the people just keep right. turning up dead. There's one where a guy goes to the other room cuz he wants to make coffee and then there's just like what's going on? He's taking too long and they go and he's like stuck to the wall and paled to the wall of the door like it's a, that scene in Halloween. I love it. Love it. So I, I love all that stuff um uh, I think I think it's unique, uh, and then by the end of the film, I think the climax is quite good too. There's that little weird Russian roulette uh, duel, and then he blows somebody up with dynamite. <laughs> oh, yeah, that for me was the highlight. And then and then the old guy comes out and he like picks up his severed leg and stuff like that. Like yeah, that was a that was definitely a highlight for me. Um, th- th- this one um, this one I enjoyed all the twists and turns. It, it, it feel it, it, like a lot of these. It feels like it could have been refined in a certain way, but uh, like a lot of uh, like exploitation movies or spaghetti westerns, like you're you're always you're always gonna commit to it, knowing that there's a possibility it's gonna be one of the worst things you've seen, but there's gonna be like five or six things that you're not going to see anywhere else. And that's the whole point. The guy, people watch exploitation movies. Like you, you will endure hours upon hours of tedium and boredom or just forgettable nonsense for something that never in a million years would ever appear up and appear in a quote unquote respectable movie. Exactly. Just 10 minutes of just like sublime cinema. And, uh, this one, you know, this one has a lot of just really interesting ideas uh, as you already mentioned, with the like, just having a hero with the glasses was, you know, just sort of a weird take on things. And uh, the double crosses, where the Mexicans are blackmailing the bank owner, and then he turn he decides to rob it himself, and then he kills everyone and all that. I mean, you know, not 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 one of my favorite spaghetti westerns, but uh, enough interesting things to to keep your attention. And another thing that they kind of flipped the script on was uh, was the Mexicans aren't like purely evil. You know, usually Mexican characters are are just uh, sadistic, <laughs> laughy type characters, villains. But uh, here they're they're sympathetic and they're treated sympathetically. Like at one point, the townspeople massacre their their little village, and you're supposed to meet you're supposed to feel sympathy for them. Uh, so that was interesting. Uh, there was what is it about? Oh yeah. Lambert should like this. It's one of the few westerns where a town actually fights back when a bank is being robbed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I think you mentioned this in a, in a video, uh, in the video on this one. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know, no, that actually is a great touch. Um, not, <laughs> I doubt because they 
we're doing any kind of research, but that is the fact. And it's one of the things about like so many Westerns, American Westerns uh, from high noon up into uh, you know, the most recent blazing uh, saddles, or <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have the cowardly townspeople, <laughs> or or even up into like uh, 310 to Yuma, where you know, the the remake, where like a guy's like, Oh, we'll kill it, we'll uh, give you $500 to shoot a lawman, and the whole town turns against the law, and it's just like. This is just not this is not anything connected to any kind of reality. Like I get it in like a high noon, they're making a point, and high noon, of course, is one of the great westerns. Fine. But but no, you go into a town at that time, try to rob their bank or do anything else. There's no insurance. These are people that are living on the frontier that are facing adversity every moment of their life. And many of whom are probably veterans from some of the most horrible wars in human history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Civil War, hardened Civil War veterans, probably all suffering from PTSD. You get a group of assholes coming in shooting guns trying to rob your money, they will go to the hardware store and shoot you to pieces. The gang, <laughs> you know, the James gang knows that. The Dalton gang knows that. No one goes into a town and and muscles shoots up the place. Time. Never they happened do. in the frontier. You, they do yeah. in Django Unchained as well. King Schultz yeah. just shoots their sheriff, and everybody just runs away and cowers. And yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it, it's like it's like. Uh, you know, it's like trying to um, rob some kind of like gun NRA convention in Arizona or something. Like, you, yeah, you know, it's like you pick the wrong going, place. Yeah. 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 A couple of guys going with some handguns and see how that works out. I mean, that was the frontier. And uh, so, you know, that whole high noon trope of the townspeople cowering in fear is just not honestly maybe that's not. why i i've seen high noon once and I'm, I'm 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 one and done with that whereas rio bravo i think i've seen 500 times and i know everybody's always saying oh well you can like both i'm like yeah but i like rio bravo better well i mean i like i like both but it's clear to me that high noon was written by a goddamn commie <laughs> yeah you have to cut you have to cut that part out if you uh, want me to i'm happy to but i uh, if you want to bash some commies on wrong real i won't stand in your way no, no, no! Don't cut it out! Don't cut it out! I'm just saying, no. That is that is one of the things that I that I did like. I don't necessarily think that it was because they were doing any kind of research into the actual American West. I think it was just, uh, you know, spaghetti Western logic. You know, the more guns, the better. Yeah, I can buy in on that. Well, one after another, I enjoyed it. I had a ton of fun watching it. But same years, one after another. You really, to appreciate this movie, you got to watch the trailer first in German. But we've got nude Django. Männer, die in ihren Stiefeln sterben. Männer, die einsam zur Melodie des Todes tanzen. Sie alle haben nur ein Ziel. Porno Hill. Vielleicht kennt ja diese luftige Landstreicherin den Weg nach Porno Hill. Denn auch die Ladies folgen hier dem Ruf der Natur nur allzu gern, wenn die harten Jungs das große Kaliber aus dem Holster holen. <lacht> Hallo, mein Scheißechen. Willkommen in meinem Vögelhäuschen. 
Hab einen hübschen Taubenschlag für dich. Ich könnte mir vorstellen, dass du dich für die Nächte in Pornoien vorbereiten willst. Oh ja, das will sie. Denn Lily Millie ist bereits im Visier des schärfsten Schützen des Wilden Westens. Ich bin Django und wer sind Sie? Lily Millie Quark. Ich bin Verleger der Zeitung Django und die sind Zwerge und ich suche ein Schneewittchen. Ihr seid meine Feinde! Ist der Colt erst gut geölt, klappt das Ballern wie geschmiert. Ja. Flöten, Geigen, Blasen, alles auf dem Rasen, denn unter mir, da liegst du richtig und das ist wichtig. Bumsi. Wenn die Munition im Großkaliber fummert, dann sind das Django Nudo und die lüsternen Mädchen von I watched from start to finish, and I was only aware of this movie because of Eric Saldivar's uh, video where he was going through all the various Django ripoffs and sequels, etc., and how they even decided to make a porno of it. So, Eric, I'm going to uh, smack the ball back to your side of the court. What's going on with New Django? What's there to say? It's a, it's a, it's a porno. It's a Western porno, uh, softcore. 1968, it was released here as Brand of Shame. I think it's big highlight, at least in the American poster, it's, it seems to be her getting tied to a tree and whipped, nude, naturally. Yeah, it's like the um, least threatening, least aggressive whipping scene in any S&M sequence, yeah. like of any movie ever, ever made. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the lady is literally smiling. Yeah. <laughs> she, like, no, she's stop! Smiling as she's being whipped. Yeah, I, I'll say this. I mean, you know, I don't really get much out of it, uh, but there's some good-looking people in it, uh, good-looking women in it, and uh, and it, the, the print I have is really nice. It's a really good-looking movie. You did, yeah. The version you sent was vastly superior to the version that I found. I just love the idea of a place that they've, just, they've dubbed Porno Hill. And what really uh, appealed to me in the trailer is the Germans talking about all the various people like Terrence Hill, who have like been part of Spaghetti Western. But I can't, I don't know what he's saying. But the fact that he's comparing Terrence Hill to Porno Hill just made me fucking pee my pants. It is funny. I'm glad you brought this up because I, I had forgotten uh, that this existed up until recently. Um, uh, there is a Django quote unquote, um, remake, uh, that, that is a porno. Cause obviously porno Hill, AKA new Django has nothing to do with a Django movie at all. There's not, there's nothing resembling a Django film in the late eighties. There's a Brazilian porno called Papaco. Uh, I believe it goes by a few other names and that Papaco is a gunfighter who drags a coffin around. He doesn't really drag it in so much as there are these little tiny wheels on it. Um, and, uh, throughout the whole movie, you don't know what's in the coffin. Uh, he has sex with a bunch of broads. None of them are good looking. Um, <laughs> nobody's good looking in this movie. And then at the end, it turns out he's, he's a dildo merchant oh, and Jesus. he opens up the coffin <laughs> and there's a bunch of dildos inside the, the box. And, wow. And he, dildo unchained. <laughs> yeah. I believe you could probably watch the whole film sans the sex stuff, uh, on YouTube, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. At least new Jenga does have some attractive folks and I'm a big fan of just 
unimaginably horrific, poorly written dialogue. Like there's a scene that was worthy of Revenge of the Sith where this guy and a girl, she's uh, taking her top off and she's like, you mean you're not disappointed? He says, you're lovely. I never imagined you. She says, I'm a woman. She says, did you ever doubt it? Surely you must have seen yourself nude. Like just like just clumsy <laughs> kind of amateur, poorly acted, like just wooden delivery. All that stuff is just uh, it's very charming. So this movie it's pretty goddamn slow for for a porno because usually in a porno when nothing's happening you just have people fuck a lot but there's this endless walking scene where they're walking through the wilderness there's no sex no dialogue and the music music's kind of warping in and out like the prince half melted it's like well, how long are y'all just gonna walk through the fucking wilderness and they go, it's endless it just goes goes and goes and goes but I did enjoy having a look see for myself of new Django new, yeah. yeah new Django was one that I think I I heard about like you know, right when I started learning about all the Django knockoffs and everything, new Django, I always assumed that it hadn't wasn't a Western or anything. I, I, you know, I, 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 I never actually pursued what whatever new Django was. Um, I was not lucky enough to catch um, Zaldivar's co- uh, copy of it when he posted it to YouTube. It got taken down, so I had to I had to watch the other version. I, from my understanding, the German one is, um, cause it's an American made film, right? The guy, um, who produced it was David Friedman, who was like a producer of like, uh, a bunch of Herschel Gordon Lewis movies and like Ilsa, she wolf of the SS and stuff. My, from my understanding, the German cut is way funnier. It has a bunch of, I guess, spaghetti Western in-jokes and stuff. It's also got a way uh, better opening song, and it has a lengthier opening when they're first, like the like the topless blonde and the, like, you know, who's hitchhiking by the sign for Porno Hill. They're just a couple of comedic and or nude bits before the credits even really get underway. And so, yeah, I much prefer the version that Eric had as opposed to the one that I found on some porn site. Yeah, unfortunately, I was not able to see Eric's version uh, of it, so I, I'm working. I can I can Google Drive it to you if you'd like. <laughs> well, uh, I think I, I think I'm probably good <laughs> now that we're yeah. actually recording the podcast. You make, you make a good point. You make a good point though that it's it when you go, you know, in the preliminary deep dives of of like these Django movies, it's 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 the one that I heard about, you know, 15 year almost more than that years ago. It's the first one you hear because I guess they want to go with the most sensationalist thing. Like, did you know that there was 50 plus sequels and one of them was New Django? <laughs> but but it was uh, it was the last one that I saw. I had never seen it before. It wasn't terribly easy to find um, for years, and I was it wasn't something that I was that I was like uh, you know willing to go out of my way to get. But then when uh, when this video came to fruition, I was just like, well, I guess I got to finally break down and find it. And uh, luckily, there was a German disc. That was fairly cheap, and uh, it looks good. Actually. How long did it, the research take for that video of 85 Django's? Because I, you know, I've made a, a bunch of YouTube videos, and some of them are just reactions to something that's being posted online, and some of them I do, you know, research and find clips. But I always try to think of like how much time am I putting in versus how much traffic I might get out of it. And you had to know in advance, you know, this is probably not going to be like um, Gangnam style on YouTube. So it's like. How did you kind of do the mental math, like about how much time and energy and expense were you willing to go through to do your every fucking Django video? Yeah, I didn't think it was going to be gangbusters or anything like that. I never thought it was going to go viral, but I did think it was going to get a lot more views than it actually did. Um, it's it's weird because some of my more esoteric videos have 
a lot more views than than the Django one does. So that's been a little disappointing, to be honest. I feel like I tried to get it on websites and things, and I feel like if this was maybe even as little as four or five years ago, had I had the video, I think I would have gotten a lot more traction. But everybody's pulled in so many different directions today. You know, uh, AV Club did an article on a video of mine years ago. I didn't even I didn't even know that they did. I had to send it. Uh, somebody sent it to me a week after it was published, and I thought, oh, maybe I can go to AV Club with a video like this. Maybe they'd be interested. Nope, they weren't. Didn't care. Uh, it took about a year overall. I wasn't constantly working on it. It was more like a side thing that I was at. And most of these movies I had seen, uh, most of these movies I remembered a little bit of that I made a quick sort of pithy comment on, as you can see in the videos. Like Some of those segments are only 10 seconds long, even less than that in some cases. Um, yeah, I came up with the idea in uh, October, maybe September 2018, and I didn't actually start breaking ground on it in terms of research until about half a year later. And slowly but surely, I was making folders for each film with the review, if you want to call it that, and uh, the trailer for it or a clip that I wanted to talk about. And I separated them into this one giant folder. So that's how that came about. It took, it took about uh, the actual putting it together after all the research was done uh about a month thereabouts well it entertained the shit out of me so i'm i'm thrilled you did it but as a way of drawing this video or this podcast to a close what do y'all want to share about django strikes again from 1987 oh boy well, before, we, before we get into that i mean i honestly think like eric's format is in many ways the ideal way to watch probably a good 90 percent of these movies <laughs> <laughs> it's you know he's he's sort of like uh you know um um some kind of religious cleric or whatever who's gonna give you the good stuff <laughs> you know like like you know watching his stuff you're gonna you're gonna get the highlights uh not to say not to search out the movies or anything like that but with big a lot of spaghetti westerns and a lot of exploitation movies in general you kind of want uh, the guy who's actually done the heavy lifting so that you t so that you don't have to watch like 85 minutes of, you know, uh, just a slog to see some insane scene, you know, uh, where, you know, it's just the wildest thing you've ever seen. Um, so but beyond that, I mean, it the stuff he does is so interesting and so informative um, and and. We should probably touch upon the fact that before we leave New Django, because let's not leave New Django yet, um, <laughs> it was what originally called uh, Brand of Shame, right? It was not, it was not considered a Django. They weren't trying to do any kind of Django thing until it went to Germany, right? Right. Once again, the Germans are <laughs> guilty of. They're, they're guilty <laughs> of ninety-eight percent of the Django. Uh, proliferation for lack of a better Jane, word Django and the Holocaust that's that's what everybody and says. yeah clearly the worst thing that the Germans were ever guilty of <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh yeah but but new Django actually uh, some of it was very funny because a lot of the dialogue is like the the actors are like tripping over their lines or stuttering and there was clearly not enough they didn't have the money to do to do to film extra takes and one of the actresses is talking about this mine that they have and she keeps calling it mind she's like help me find the mind <laughs> and 
So, so uh, you know, new Django is uh, in terms of the plot and story and everything outside of the, you know, like, uh, you know, late sixties, early seventies torpedo boobs um, is, is not much different from your average, like boring spaghetti Western of just like the plot. No one cared about. And so like, you know, in other ones, you're waiting for the big gunfight. And in this one, you're waiting for the torpedo boobs. So new Django uh, gets my highest recommendation. Nice. Highest possible <laughs> recommendation. I like that. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I recommend it. But a high, high recommendation. That's a very rare David Lambert uh, thumbs up that we hear. I, I, th- I think it's the same lady who gets whipped, uh, who is just laughing as she's being whipped. She keeps calling her mind that her father or whoever owns. She keeps calling it mind. The, the the crew did not correct her. So so anyway, you guys go ahead. Uh, what Django strikes again? Is that what we're talking about now? Sure. Yeah. I, which I have okay. to admit, I have not seen because it sounded. I think the, the only reason people mention it is because it's got Franco Nero and Sergio Corbucci. I mean, I, Corbucci was uh, involved as a producer, but it seems like people mention it because of that. But it doesn't seem like uh, anybody mentions it because they love the movie. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, I it's did. The only. Go ahead, Lambert. Oh, I, I I did like like you. I did not rewatch it for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I maybe should have planned better, but I don't think that a second rewatching is going to improve it. It is. Uh, ooh, it's tough. It's got uh, who's in it? Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance. Uh, what's that? Christopher Connolly. And oh, okay. That's about then all. Some- and then some sort of like Grace Jones y sort of lady with a whip. But uh, I honestly don't remember much about it. Once Django like digs up his machine gun and shooting people, it's like from from my memory of twenty years ago, like it's just guys falling in like slow motion and it just is drawn out it's 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 not good and is it like the uh the wild bunch ripoff that we watched that uh what's that western that we watched with the yeah no it's nowhere near as good as uh 40 guns for 40 grace for 40 guns or whatever yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i had to i watched that final scene for our episode of uh peckinpah knockoffs or the bastard sons of sam peckinpah oh uh, no it's this is like watching peckinpah b-roll it's no there's no cuts it's there's no editing. It's just long shots of guys falling off of horses in slow motion. If it was uh, if it, had, it was as squibby as the movie you just mentioned, then it might have been better. Actually, uh, the only really commendable thing about it is that uh, they really tried to do something completely like you. It's not a western per se. It's uh, it's basically a First Blood Part Two ripoff. Um, they're in the jungles of Colombia. They're by a river most of the time, or they're in a river. Um, the villain has a giant steamboat that he fires cannons from. <laughs> I don't know. There's not really much to say, except it's not uh, it's not what you want out of an unofficial Django sequel. And Corbucci and, died shortly thereafter, correct? Yeah, I think he died in 89 or 90. Franco, I got him to tell me in private that the only reason he made that movie was because he wanted to go fishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... For me, honestly, you know, I, I don't know how loose we uh, go with the idea of a Django ripoff or a retitled movie as Django. My favorite would be Kaoma. It was retitled as a Django movie, 
Uh, I'm am I am I wrong there? Well, Eric? yeah, it, I I threw in Kioma into the list because it was I could only ever find. What do we? I couldn't find any VHS cover or anything. All I could find was on uh, the Spaghetti Western database that in France it was considered a Django movie, and as well as I believe in the USA, it's called Django Rides Again. I did yeah. come across an article after the. It's fact the fact that he plays a Native American who's had the exact same hairstyle and like fashion sense <laughs> his right. entire life since childhood. But I couldn't. Yeah, it's true. But I couldn't. Uh, I I couldn't find actual proof of that. It was just listed on their Kioma page, so I just threw it in just in case. I will say that I did find after I made the video. So I I wish I would have found it beforehand, but oh well, too late. I did find some a pitch package that Enzo Castellari, the director, and Franco had put together back in 75 or 76 that they were trying to actually get a Django sequel off the ground that eventually uh, turned into Kioma, yeah, when they could Yeah, and so, like, Kioma, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if I'd say I love it, but Kaoma, I I like it, and I probably like Kaoma more than the original Django, just overall. But um, uh, but Kaoma even has scenes that are, I mean, the whole thing about the hotel room, getting the key from the whore, and all that stuff is directly taken from Django. And the set is the same as Django, right? It, it, it had fallen into disrepair and stuff, so. I mean, if you want to consider that as one of the Django knockoffs, I I think that is probably probably the high point. Yeah, Kaoma is a very good looking film. I mean, every shot is is really something to marvel at, kind of with especially when you consider their budget and the time that they made it in. But um, I, you when, know, I can't think of Kaoma though without thinking of that goddamn soundtrack, which the soundtrack is permeates is, is, like the entire movie. Like, oh, no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's just this incessant wailing that. <laughs> the, and, and that's my question is that uh, when it was retitled, was that music still there? And 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 uh, how did the audience take seeing like this unofficial Django sequel where someone keeps talking about this Kaoma guy? So <laughs> or, or unless they change the music, I don't know. I mean, that's par for the course. So many of these things, there weren't even Django. There wasn't a Django character in them. So, you know, supposedly on, on, on Franco Nero's IMDb, uh, he's got some movie that is, where he's playing Kaoma and it's supposed to be directed by uh, Castellari. It has some kind of um, four horsemen or some kind of name like that. So. Yeah, I forget the name, but uh, take a look at who's in the cast on that one. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of weird, like, uh, oh, man, who is in the cast? A bunch of, like, clearly people that they probably grabbed for cameos. like People that they grabbed from uh, celebrity zoos and, at uh, conventions. But, but if you look further down the list, you might find a recognizable name. Two of them, actually. Yeah, no, there were some people that I recognize. I, I can't remember well, Are their now. names Eric Zaldivar and David Lambert? Or? <laughs> They're Eric Zaldivar and Mike Malloy, yeah. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Uh, I did not see those ones. Well, well, that's probably a good time to talk about uh, your experience. What is the story, <laughs> Lambert? I don't know. Well, okay, well, for, okay. My memory is that is that uh, I was writing a sequel to the movie that we have not named. Then mm-hmm. uh, you had written to me and said I've had this idea for a Django sequel. 
and uh, you know, um, these are the We're basic. Talking about Django lives then. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Django. Django lives, right? Okay. Yeah. And you were like, these are the beats, and I was like, oh, you know, well, I'm busy with this one, but I'm, but I'm interested. And then you kind of made this whole sort of Django sequel happen. I don't know. From there, you could take it from there. Kind of, sort of, yeah. Um, Are you wrong on that? I think that's kind of... No, that's not, that's not, that's, I think that's about right. I mean, we're going back almost 10 years now. Um, I think that's about right. Um, uh, uh, 2012, obviously, Django Unchained was going to happen at the end of the year. I decided, because Franco, um, I had, who I had been friends with for, at that point, four years, he would come and visit every year in Miami for a film festival. And we'd just have, like, dinner or something. And uh, we, I decided that this was the year I was working at MTV and uh, he called me saying, hey, could you meet me at such and such place where I'm going to show you a screening and we can go have dinner afterwards? And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. So that day, I, I, instead of doing the work I was supposed to do, I uh, wrote a quick treatment uh, and printed it out and then handed him the treatment that night. And he read it and he really liked it. And he says, yeah, let's... Uh, Let's do this. And my initial idea was to have it be kind of in the same vein, only with a lot bigger budget. Um, the same vein as the movie that we haven't mentioned. Uh, that we, It could be a uh, the same production company uh, with our friend and Lambert and, and a bunch of and a few other guys. Um, we're going to make it for like um, probably like $200,000. I figured we could possibly find that off the back of the Django Unchained movie that was coming out. But Franco, it was in his infinite wisdom to, uh, no, 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 we got to ask for a lot of money. If the movie comes, if the Django Unchained comes out and makes a lot of money, then we ask for a lot of money. I'm like, oof, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and I think Django Unchained was Tarantino's biggest box office success globally that he ever made. I think it I think, made like $350 million or something insane. I think Hollywood might have surpassed that. I'm not sure. But yes, up until a point, it was. Uh, it became a thing. I wrote the script, uh, the first draft of it, in November of 2012. I gave it to uh, my my uh, writing partner, uh, usual collaborator, uh, Mike Malloy, and he says, you know, this needs a little work. Let me work on it. So he did a second pass on it. And we had a finished first draft, anyway. We had a finished first draft by uh, late December, and that was when the first articles started coming in, I believe. Uh, I forget. It, it was Tinier Fish. I don't remember it being big, but it wasn't until the next summer where we got a Hollywood Reporter article. We had Franco attached. We got a lot of interesting people attached. We got uh, we had the DP of Wes Anderson's films, uh, Bobby Ullman, attached off of the the the, uh, the quality of the script. We, we had a, a, an original director attached as well, uh, a guy named Joe D'Agostine, a friend of ours, mutual friend. And a uh, few few character actors that were interesting, almost kind of like like B plus level character actors were involved. It was it was it looked like it was coming together, but we just couldn't find anybody who was interested to finance it. Um, and then finally, in February of 2013, uh, these producers showed up. I won't name them. You can go and look for yourself. They're still on there. Um, these producers showed up, and and Mike and I were kind of. Not exactly happy with them, but we decided to go with them because that was the only options we had. And uh, it was pretty clear very quickly that they were a little bit past it. Uh, there's this one particular producer who she had quite the career um, from the, I, I want to say, late 70s 
all the way to, I guess, about uh, the early 90s, impressive career. Uh, but, um, you know, she herself seemed a little past it. Some of her choices were a little odd. Um, and when I mean a little odd, I mean they were very odd. Uh, it, was, it seemed a little, there was a little bit of incompetence creeping into the project. And then they got even more producers involved and they threw more money around. And, and uh, it became pretty clear. Uh, Malloy actually called it about a year in advance. He said, look, here's what's going to probably go down. All these people claiming they love the script, they love the script, this is great. And, and I think people generally did because we had all these, this amazing uh, talent waiting to do the picture. Um, but he says, they, they, all these people, all these producers claiming that they love the script, guess what? When they're not able to find anything because of their goofy way of going about and trying to find money, trying to raise money, when they're not able to find anything, they're going to start blaming the script because they, they can't blame themselves. So that's exactly what happened almost a year to the day that he said that. Um, so we were bought out uh, because they, they all of a sudden the script had problems and all this stuff. And uh, so we were bought out and it was given to John Sales, who I'm sure got paid uh, quite a lot of money. Yeah, and he's an amazing script doctor. and He's been a script doctor going back to the 70s when he's not making his pet projects. Right. Um, I heard him on an interview recently on uh, Trailers from Hell where he mentioned Django lives and essentially from what I can tell the, uh, the story is exactly the same. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, uh, I heard through a little birdie, uh, I won't mention who, uh, his initials are F and N. Um, but I won't, I won't say what his name is. What his name <laughs> is. Hmm. Um, that, uh, John sales was attached to direct for a while. In fact, you can find articles dating back, I think to 2014 on that. Uh, but his wife, who was sort of his manager at the time, maybe still is, she confronted the producers who were still goofing off and not able to find money. And she says, look, if you guys aren't able to find anything within such an amount of time, then John is not going to be directing this project. And lo and behold, John is no longer directing the project. Right now it is uh, being helmed by uh, Christian Allvart, who's a German director, um, he recently got signed in uh, at uh, one of the biggest talent agencies out here. I don't know what's going to happen to the project now. As of five months ago, I got an email saying they found the money. Uh, no, a little bit more than five months ago, excuse me. This was shortly before the pandemic. So uh, apparently they had found the money. They were going to shoot in May. But then guess what happened? Uh, COVID-19 happened. So I don't know. It's up in the air at the moment as to what's going to happen. Uh, but yeah, Christian Olvard, I, I don't know what he's done. I don't know his work, except uh, he made that uh, Renee Zellweger movie that nobody saw back in 2009, the one that she made before she disappeared for a few years, uh, Case 39. It was a studio uh, thriller, psychological thriller, I think it was. Um, so that's who's helming the film now. Uh, it's still John Sales's rewritten script from our script. So that's... Uh, that's where that stands. Chris, Christian Olivard, I'm looking at him right now. Django Lives is still classified as in pre-production on IMDb, yeah. but uh, he's got some show called Slowborn. Uh, uh, did four episodes in 2020, so he's uh, and something else called Riptide in pre-production. But Django Lives is there as an active uh, film on uh, on IMDb. Yeah. So the the and Eric, stop me if I'm giving anything away about it, but the really interesting conceit about it is that Django is sort of like uh, Wyatt Earp 
uh, in the sense of like, you know, after Wyatt's, you know, career as a lawman and all this stuff, he went to Hollywood and kind of became a consultant. Um, he knew William S. Hart. Uh, John Ford and John Wayne claim to have known him. I don't know how true that actually is. Um, John Wayne claims to base his whole persona on uh, Wyatt Earp. But um, so the, the, the concept is um, Django being sort of a wrangler, like a horse wrangler, okay. well, maybe consultant on westerns and silent films. yeah technical consultant on silent westerns and then certain things happen and this and that yeah so, stuff happens uh, exactly yeah no i was fascinated i was doing research at the time i was fascinated with the idea that if you survived if you were of some notoriety uh in the western period of the united states um if you survived the period you went into entertainment uh there was buffalo bill's Wild West show, and uh, you know, there's a guy named Al Jennings, who was a train robber in the 1890s, and he went. In, he was one of the first independent filmmakers. So that was a uh, uh, Henry so Starr, Quanta Parker. There's a film that has Quanta Parker, who was the last great Comanche chief. Um, that has um, I can't remember his name uh, uh, off the top of my head, but he is the villain of Heaven's Gate. There's a film that has Quanta Parker and the main bad guy of Heaven's Gate together, um, Emmett Dalton. All these guys went to Hollywood and started being technical consultants or doing films about their lives. So it's just kind of an interesting conceit to have this mythological figure of Django coming to Hollywood and <laughs> fulfilling that role. And I knew I had to write Django as an actual character. I had nothing to go on. And we don't we don't disrespect the original by any means. In fact, there's a lot of allusions to the original. Um, we, we sort of treat the events of that movie as, yeah, they probably happened, but it was an exaggerated, like a game of telephone. Like, it, 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 those events happened, but... Uh, it's it's gone through many many mouths and many storytellers and they've just built upon it and built upon it so it's almost like a dreamlike thing um uh but yeah i i basically wrote uh, franco i wrote franco nero i didn't write you know the original django i wrote i wrote him frango i guess you can call him i wrote him as the character <laughs> where he yeah, it, he's clearly uh, some sort of immigrant of some sort there's some allusions to that as well like somebody everybody asks is like what's with the you know weird accent you know i thought you were an american and he dismisses it by saying lines like yeah it's apple pie you know or something um, american is apple pie he doesn't go into where he's actually from and stuff like that yeah it's one of those things i i was so like wrapped up in writing this other script to this film that we had done that that uh, I wasn't able to work on it, and and it's one of those things that I was like, oh man, I wish I could have uh, contributed something to it because um, it's such a fun concept, and the idea of seeing the events of uh, Corbucci's Django played out in a silent film just seems so fun and such a cool concept. Fuck yeah, that would be uh, sign me up. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Just like you know, seeing Django with like you know, uh, colored eyelashes and lipstick, uh, just mowing down people with a machine gun uh, in a silent film just appeals to me immediately. 
And we had, uh, you know, un unlike Django Strikes Again, uh, where his hands are miraculously fixed, his hands were, were crippled. I don't know what uh, I don't know what happened to that in the John Sayles version, but his hands are crippled in, in our script. Interesting. Oh, well, so a, a, ra a rare little gasp of continuity between films. That's true, but I don't know if Eric remembers because when we went to that party, um, I do uh, exactly Franco, what you're Franco Nero was talking to Joe. 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 Is it? I always call him Joe D'Agostino. Is it pronounced different? D'Agostino. D'Agostino. Okay. So Joe D'Agostino worked on a bunch of Tarantino movies as sort of like an assistant editor, or uh, he was basically what the next tier down from Sally Menke, or am I wrong? Yeah, there was there was a point where I believe he was uh, passed by for uh, for the new guy. Well, he was working on the Man with the Iron Fist. Right, uh, uh, I think so. Fred Raskin came in, but uh, I remember <laughs> Fred Nero being like, "Why do my hands have to be crippled?" Like mm, he was, he was, he was trying. He was, he was debating it with the director. I remember there, so yeah. I, watching Joe him, like, was, my hands—they have to be crippled. I don't, I don't know why my hands have to be crippled. <laughs> yeah, well, Joe, Joe was sold on the crippled hands. I think I remember that conversation. Um, it, it's mostly to do with uh, Franco's vanity. I don't, I don't think. I think he wanted his hands. People not love crippled action heroes, whether it's like one armed boxer or fucking Zatoichi or whatever the case might be. But whether you're talking about Hong Kong or Japan or Italy or whatever, if you're making genre films, having a, some sort of handicap is part of the charm. I think his concern was is that we rewrote it as they were grotesque. Ah. They were just like, you know, um, but but uh, Joe was sold on the hands. I up until I left, um, the hands were still there. You know? Well, Joe Joe is has been editing movies for the longest time. I think he cut together the um, original trailer to like Last Tango in Paris and stuff, and he worked with Michael Cimino and and all these other things, and he was one of the main figures in the restoration of the good, the bad, and the ugly, the European cut in America. Am I wrong on that? Uh, we're talking, well, we're talking, I uh, know he was the editor of the two. Oh, okay. I think, yeah, we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. The yeah. O three, uh, kind of bastard, because there's three versions of the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's the American cut and then there's the Italian cut and all the dubbing that goes with that. And then the third one is the kind of bastardized version where they threw As the scenes. bad audio. Yeah. Yeah, where they have an old Clint Eastwood and an old Eli Wallach and a J yes. and a yeah. impersonator, but it's got all these scenes that weren't intended for the film at all after the premiere. He cut all that out, so it's like you're watching a three-hour movie that's just like snails. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean the original theatrical cut of the movie is pretty long to begin with. Like all the scenes, like when Tuco gets his guys back, I don't need that scene. Like there are a couple scenes that are put back in there that I think make an. I mean, it's one of my all-time favorite movies, but it's a, it's a long movie, and so I'm, I'm totally fine just watching the original theatrical cut of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, because I'd seen it like 50 times before I saw the longer version, and I don't know if the longer version makes the movie demonstrably better, but... No, it does. Uh, at the time, it was a cool thing to see, you know. At the time, it was a cool thing to see more, more Good, Bad, and the Ugly, but it's not something that I would revisit ever again. And also, they did uh, just unforgivable thing of, of changing sound the effects. Western sound effects, yeah. Yeah. Real bad, real bad. I like uh, no longer the uh, ricochet sound effects. It's some kind of like just sort of shitty, like 
you know, uh, public domain sort of sound like gunshots like put over it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Apparently, Joe tried to explain that to the producer of that endeavor, and he's just like, "Hey, you can't do this. Like, like people expect to hear the sound effects from the original." He's like, "Ah, oh, but it's so shitty." So they went with you know their, their <laughs> big brain idea. Yeah, very smart. Well, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I dragged us into the weeds. Well, it's uh, yeah, no, I don't know what the future of the film is. It would be nice if uh, it got released uh, or made or produced because uh, Mike and I would get another round of checks. That's about it. <laughs> well, Mr. Lambert, what do you got going on? What do you what do you got coming up in your future? Last time you were on, you mentioned a short film you were thinking about doing, uh, shooting it on your Indian reservation where you where you live. Oh yeah, uh, I'm I'm still getting that figured out. Still meeting with. Uh, historical, uh, the historical councils of the tribes and stuff to make sure I'm not, uh, you know, um, being too cavalier in the way I portray the the history of their tribes. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always got something cooking and uh, Eric and I oftentimes are collaborating on different things here and there, but, uh, you know, and then uh, my art, I'm I'm probably going to be starting a Patreon pretty soon once I get that figured out. So um, uh, anyone who enjoys all my artwork and everything should uh, follow that once I get What's it What's the best run. social media for people? If people are unfamiliar with your past appearances or wrong real, where can people find your art? Well, you can find my art on Instagram. I haven't been updating it a whole lot recently, but uh, Instagram, Facebook, and then Twitter. And then Twitter is also the place where I – kind of, uh, you know, uh, do uh, a lot of things about Western history and usually through a lens of Western movies so that they sort of have a latching on point. So, uh, yeah, if you are interested in the minutia of the Old West or Western movies, uh, my Twitter is probably the best place to go. And then whenever I do new art, I will post it there too. And Eric, where's the best place for people to find you online? Oh, I don't have the most creative YouTube page. Uh, it's just called Eric Zaldivar, at least for now. Beautiful. Uh, you can find my uh, Spaghetti Western Deep Cuts videos, which uh, there's four of those at the moment. Uh, those are uh, much more academic, but not boring, I don't think. Much more academic. Hilarious. Uh, they're much more academic than the, the Django one. The Django one is more kind of like a, you know, like I said earlier, short, pithy sort of thing where I try to get through them as quickly as possible. I'm not going in-depth on a lot of those movies. Um, but the Spaghetti Western Deep Cuts, I pick a film, and I try to get as much info on it as I possibly can while also comparing it to other films that it's similar to and certain scenes that can be found that have been turned into tropes later and sort of like a very spider web uh, hodgepodge of uh, you know um, uh, film criticism and or essay. Rather, I'm not so much criticized. Although I'm, I'm very truthful about those movies, you know. Not, and what's the best platform where folks can talk to you? Best place to, to contact me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, is it Twitter, Facebook? Like, what, what, what if someone wanted uh, to reach out to Twitter. you and say hello? Where, where would they yeah, go? Yeah, I have a Twitter. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't uh, know what it's called. Is it Eric One? Eric Zaldivar? Um, I, have uh, I, I, ju I just found it. You, you were not lying that it is a relatively inactive account, but yeah, it's Eric Zaldivar One. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm gonna link it all the same. Yeah, oh, please link uh, my YouTube page and maybe link one of the, 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 the Deep Cuts videos. Um, Most definitely. I'd, rather they, I'd yeah. rather they go there. If you want to contact me, I think I have a Facebook until, you know, until further notice. So um, that's the best way to contact me. 
Very cool. Well, guys, it's been a hoot and a half tackling the subject with y'all, and I'm always open to any and all topics, whether it's Westerns or non-Westerns or whatever. But yeah, Mr. Lambert and I, we've got some ideas about like the Johnson County War or possibly Anthony Mann and maybe even doing uh, The Searchers at some point after I've had a chance to read this giant tome about the Comanches that I've got on, on, on my table. But I'm always open to a pitch on a cool subject. So once again, I'd seen only the original Django, and so I saw six new quote-unquote Django movies as a result of this episode. So so thank you guys for coming on Wrong Reel and shooting the shit about the uh, the legendary character that is Django. Thank you. I hope it was informative. I hope it was. Oh hell yeah! No, absolutely. I, I learned a lot. And for me, like the way you're burnt out about Django, I'm not because it's all fresh terrain for me. So the way I keep my enthusiasm alive for films is by exploring new frontiers, new horizons. So this took me into strange, forbidden territory, which is always my favorite kind of episode. But we hope you all have enjoyed this podcast. Please remember to leave a rating and review of the podcast. But um, yeah, definitely hunt down David Lambert and Eric Zaldivar on social media and check out and support their work. But hope y'all have enjoyed this episode. Hunt down my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, if you want some more short content in the near future. But I hope everyone has a great uh, weekend. Hope you enjoy watching the Django films. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.